Transmission start. Welcome to Where Did the Road Go? Join us as we wander off the path and explore lost history, consciousness, the paranormal, unexplained mysteries, alternative thought, and much more. We are present on the web at wheredidtheroadgo.com. Now here is your host, Soraya. Welcome to Where Did the Road Go? Tonight is a uh, remastered edition uh, of a very a couple of very old shows. These were the first two times I have Robert Shock on. Uh, the first one was February 23rd, 2013, so that makes him probably my third or fourth guest. And then I had him back on in June, and this is when I was doing the show live. So the first one was over the phone, and it sounds a little thin. There's not a whole lot I can do about it. The second one was over Skype, and for some reason, I sound a little muddy, but Robert sounds great. Um, so yeah, this, this, is, uh, this was one of the people that when I started the show, I really wanted to talk to, and he was kind enough to come on right at the beginning, and so I figured these, these couple of conversations are both important, and... Uh, yeah, they're just uh, a couple of shows I really like, so I wanted to reshare them for anyone who missed them since they're, you know, over 10 years old now. So here you go, Robert Shock, both shows here on Where Did the Road Go? Enjoy. And this week on Where Did the Road Go? We have with us Mr. Robert Shock, who is uh, currently in Boston. Are you there, Robert? I am. I'm in Boston. <laughs> okay, that's what I thought. <laughs> So, uh, I really appreciate you doing this, and I am a big fan of your work. Thank you. I actually just finished your latest book. Wonderful. Forgotten Civilization. Yes, and uh, how many books do you have out total? Oh, boy, I don't know. Well, at least um, on this subject. how you count them, because some are more academic, some are anthologies, but about a dozen. Okay. What, what, everything, but some of them are very, you know, strictly scientific, technical. Right, and you are... Um, I'm a, a faculty member at Boston University. I've been at Boston University since 1984, full-time, so a long time. And I received my Ph.D. in geology and geophysics at Yale University. And this kind of gives you a head, uh, like, uh, you're, you're a bit ahead of all the other researchers in this field because most of them are not from an accredited university who are doing this work. Yeah, that's actually true. Um, not, I certainly don't want to uh, put anyone down, but in this field of whatever one wants to call it, alternative history, um, sort of non-traditional studies of ancient history, that type of thing, I'm one of the few, I'm the only one I can think of offhand, that's really involved in this, that is at a university that has a PhD in you know applicable field, that type of thing. It, it, Again, I'm not trying to sound the wrong way, but... Oh, no, no, no. Your, no. Point, your point, is, point is true. It, it makes it a little harder for the, the mainstream scientists to dismiss you, though. They can't just say, well, he doesn't have a degree, so what does he know? Yeah, this, this is true. <laughs> can, can you talk a little bit about how you got involved in this, this alternative uh, history field a little quickly, just for people who well, are not familiar yeah, with you? Yeah, I can do it. I, uh, I'll try to do it quickly. I've actually always been interested in ancient history and archaeology and ancient cultures. I sort of have a very broad general background in some ways, uh, going back to childhood. If people know what theosophy is, uh, my grandmother, who's now deceased, she was a old-time theosophist. She had been a theosophist in Europe and brought that to America, and I actually 
was exposed to a lot of, shall we say, non-conventional ideas and concepts through her, even as a young child. I went to college at George Washington University. I got degrees in geology. I got another degree in anthropology because I was interested in so many things. Then I went to Yale University to get my PhD, and I got my PhD in geology and geophysics, along with a couple of masters in geology and in geophysics. Then I decided to stay in academia rather than get a job with an oil, oil company or something like that. I went to Boston University, and I've been teaching full-time since then, since 1984 at Boston University, and I was a straightforward, should we say, academic geologist until about 1989 or so, and at that time, there was a fellow faculty member at Boston University who was an English professor, and he had spent time in Cairo, in Egypt, teaching at the American University in Cairo, and while he was there, he came to know a fellow that some of the listeners may know of, and that is John Anthony West, an independent Egyptologist. So John West had made friends with this English professor who was now teaching at Boston University. I had become friends with him. And something that John West had mentioned to the English professor was that he was actually looking for a geologist to help with his studies in ancient Egypt and particularly to look at the Great Sphinx and reevaluate the Great Sphinx in terms of its age from a geological perspective. So in the late 1980s, I was introduced to John Anthony West. We sort of got along right away, and he has become a very close friend uh, for the last, you know, 20, well, 24, 25 years. So he really got me reinvolved in something I, I had loved as a child, and I've been doing it ever since now for over 20 years. Now, now, did you expect the reaction you got from the archaeological community when you came forth with your evidence on the dating of the Sphinx? No, well, no, I really didn't. I was naive. And just so everyone knows what we're talking about, the Sphinx is traditionally dated to about 2500 B.C. That's the status quo, Egyptological, conventional point of view. It was built in the 4th Dynasty, 2500 B.C. by the pharaoh Khafre or Shephron. And I went over there first in 1990. My first actual trip to Egypt was 1990. I was evaluating it geologically. I did seismic studies around it to look at subsurface weathering. And I did a lot of research on it. And what I came to conclude was that the core body, the body, the lion's body of the Sphinx, basically, was eroded not by wind and sand, as you expect in the Sahara Desert, but by water, by precipitation. It was not Nile flooding, I want to make that clear, but precipitation by rain beating down. So this immediately suggested that the body of the Sphinx was pre-Sahara, which means it's pre-3000 B.C., and given the level of erosion, given the level of weathering, it had to go back at least several thousand years prior to 3000 B.C. So I did this geologically. I had, I felt very good data. I presented it at the Geological Society of America initially in 1991. My fellow geologists found it very fascinating. 
they virtually unanimously agreed with me. In fact, some of them said, look, it's so simple, it's so straightforward. Where were the Egyptologists? Why hadn't they noticed this before? And so, you know, it actually made headlines at the time that, you know, the Sphinx, at least the oldest portions of the Sphinx go back much earlier. I just want to mention that the head has been recarved, so it's not the original head. But the oldest portions of the body go back much earlier. So my geological colleagues were fine with this. They agreed with me. They supported me. But almost immediately, I mean, within 24 hours, Egyptologists were calling in. Reporters were talking about their research for the New York Times or the L.A. Times. They would then ask Egyptologists what they thought. And the reaction of the Egyptologists was absolutely the opposite from the geologists. They basically said this was impossible, it can't be, they don't know any geology, but they know Egyptology, <laughs> and they know that nothing in ancient Egypt goes back that far of such an advanced nature. So they they actually came after me like crazy. They called me a pseudoscientist, all kinds of name-calling. You know, That's what you do, I guess, when you don't have evidence. <laughs> uh, and, and it got very bitter. It got very nasty, especially over through the 1990s. And I was naive. I actually did not expect that. I thought that um, it was an interesting problem. I thought that I was giving essentially the Egyptologists more to work with because I was not denying ancient dynastic Egypt. I was saying things go back further. Okay, so you've got even more to study, more, <laughs> more interesting things. But they did not take it that way. And, and you have some great antidotes in your, uh, in your book about this whole, whole situation and some of the oh, stuff yeah. that happened. Um, and, and, you know, people will always say you can't date stone, but you basically did by, by checking out the erosion like a geologist yeah, can. Exa exactly, because you can look at erosion patterns. You can fit that to um, climatic patterns. We have a very good sense of geologically what the climate has been and how it's changed over time in North Africa. Also, we did seismic work. When I say we, Thomas DeBecchia, a geophysicist and myself, did seismic work around the Sphinx. So we looked at subsurface weathering, not erosion, but subsurface mineralogical changes, that type of weathering. And you can calibrate that. You know, As it weathers for a longer period of time, it goes deeper into the rock, and you can calibrate that. And we did that independently of the sub. I'm sorry, independently of the surface weathering and came to, uh, you know, the same results. And what do the uh, Egyptol Egyptologists base their dating on? They base it on context. That's really the simplest way to say it because there are no records that explicitly state when the Sphinx was built or who built it. There is a granite stella that is from about 1400 B.C., that when it was initially found, supposedly had the name of Khafre on it, but it was not clear what the context was. And some Egyptologists claimed well, that meant that Khafre built the Sphinx. Actually, what I think it meant, and I have good basis for this, is that Khafre actually dug the Sphinx out of the sand, as it's been dug out of the sand many times over the last three to 4,000 years. So they base it primarily, actually not primarily, solely on context. The Great Pyramid sits just to the north of the Sphinx, to the northwest of the Sphinx. The Second Pyramid sits 
due west of the Sphinx, and then the third pyramid uh, sits to the southwest, basically. And they date those pyramids to the fourth dynasty, more or less from 26 to 2400 BC. And they say the Sphinx is part of that complex, therefore it must have the same date. Sometimes I make the point that you can go to a great city like Rome, you can see the Colosseum from the first century uh, AD, and then you can see modern buildings built in the 20 or 21st century. If we fast forward 3,000, 4,000 years from now, it would be the same as archaeologists in the future saying, well, these buildings that we know are the 20th century and the Colosseum that we know is 2,000 years earlier, they would say, oh, they're in the same context. They're, in the, they're just a couple of blocks from each other. They must all be the same age. Right. For me, it's just faulty reasoning. I think what happened is that you have a very important site, we'll call it a sacred site, that was used for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, and you had, I'll call it the proto-Sphinx there, and the dynastic Egyptians took it over and they built and rebuilt and added to much more ancient structures. Now, the biggest, one of the biggest arguments that archaeologists used against you was that there was no culture that far back that could have built the Sphinx, that's correct. That's correct. In fact, Mark Lehner, the uh, Egyptologist, and it's interesting, he actually got his PhD at Yale also, um, just coincidentally, but in Egyptology, as far as, you know, I was in, I got, I received my PhD in geology and geophysics, and he was there when I, I, I have to say it up here, in 1992, this reached such a boiling point that the American Association for the Advancement of Science held a so-called debate on the age of the Sphinx. It was in Chicago. I went there to represent, you know, the new, my redating of the Sphinx. Mark Lehner was the Egyptologist that would head up the rebuttal and argue for the traditional 2500 BC. And it turned out very, very quickly that it became apparent to me very quickly that this was not a real debate. This was basically a setup to try to, I'll use the term, lynch me, to uh. try to attack me. Mark Lehner called me a pseudoscientist. He didn't really want to hear the data. He didn't want to hear the analysis. And his rebuttal to me, what he thought was the, the clinching point of his argument, the core of his argument was that before about 3000 BC, people did not build things like the Sphinx. They were not civilized enough. They didn't have the technology. They didn't have the willpower. They didn't have the sophistication. They didn't have the organizational skills to build cities, to build the Sphinx, to build things like that. And he made the statement that they were just hunter-gatherers before about 3000 or BC, and so my dating was impossible because you just can't have things that sophisticated that far back. And he made a very memorable statement saying, show me the pottery shards of any sophisticated civilization anywhere that's you know prior to about 3000 or maybe on the outside 4000 BC. So how that, that stuck with me, and I've been looking for decades since, and we now have an incredible site which confirms what I've been saying about the origins of civilization 
in uh, southeastern Turkey called Gebekli Tepe that's really sophisticated that goes back to eight to 10,000 BC. And how excited were you, were you when you when you heard about this site? Oh, I was ecstatic uh, because it's, I had to go see it for myself. I've been there several times now. Actually, I'm going back in June. If uh, I'm t- actually going back and I'm taking people with me, whoever would like to join, uh, they can go to my website. Uh, can I say my website? Absolutely. Yeah, www. Robert Schock, and my last name is spelled S-C-H-O-C-H, so it's R-O-B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-C-H, robertschock.com. And that is also linked on wheredidtheroadgo.com as well. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. Um, I remember you did that. So people should go to my website. They can find out about my book. They can find out about the uh, trip to Gebekli Tepe. But I was ecstatic because Gebekli Tepe is an incredibly sophisticated site. It consists of uh, stone circles of monoliths, sort of like Stonehenge, but much more sophisticated than Stonehenge. Stonehenge itself is dated back to about 2500 to maybe 3000 BC, various parts of it. Gebekli Tepe is dated back to eight to 10,000 BC, so more than twice as old as dynastic Egypt as things like Stonehenge by conventional dating. And there's no question about Gebekli Tepe, this is not sort of new age, not to sound the wrong way, but it's not new age wishful thinking. It is being excavated by uh, Herr Professor Dr. Klaus Schmidt of the German Archaeological Institute. I've talked to him about it, I've met with him on site, I've been there several times now to study it, I'm going back. And he is doing the most meticulous, thorough excavation you can imagine of the site. And he's got all kinds of good dates, radiocarbon dates, uh, what we call in geology stratigraphic dating. So there's absolutely no question this is the real thing. The dates are good. And in answer to Mark Lehner all those years ago, (laughs) here we have an even more sophisticated site than I could have imagined at an even earlier dating the, at the end of the last ice age. And it's it's not, actually for people who don't know, it's not that far away from Egypt. No, it's not, it's not. In fact, uh, we know that uh, the people back then, and we can reconstruct this from uh, different stone objects, stone tools, and that type of thing, where geologically you can figure out the provenance where certain stones are coming from because all stones basically have their own signature and they were trading back and forth where, you know, we're talking just, uh, uh, if you think of the Middle East, sort of the southern portion, North Africa with Egypt and uh, uh, just, just the people have a feel for the Middle East is just above the Syrian-Turkey border, the modern border between Syria and Turkey. So they're not that far away. Uh, there's plenty of evidence. It's not, in my mind, an issue. There could have been cultural interaction, trade, that type of thing. Now, how big is the Gobekli Tepe site? The Gobekli Tepe covers a very large area. It's acres and acres and acres. It consists of these Stonehenge-type circles of monoliths and there are at least 20 
some such circles. And each one is, I'm thinking in meters, you know, third, some of them are, you know, 10 to 20 meters or so in diameter. So, you know, you're talking 30 to 70 feet or so. So these are big things. The stones themselves, the monoliths are sort of T-shaped, and the largest that have been excavated so far are five and a half meters or so tall, so think 18 feet or so. They weigh 10 to 15 tons. So these are not small stones that were uh, carved out. They were moved. They were erected, as I said, in Stonehenge-like circles. And Klaus Schmidt has excavated better portion of four of these circles, also known as enclosures. But seismically and from other remote sensing types of geophysics and preliminary shallow excavations he's done to expose the tops of some of them, there's at least 20 other circles. So it's a very large site. I also want to point out that unlike Stonehenge, these monoliths are beautifully carved. They have nice, smooth surfaces. They're not just big, rough-hewn blocks that were moved into place. And not only do they have smooth surfaces, but they have carvings on the surfaces. So they have animals carved in them. There's uh, statues that have been found there. Uh, stone statues have been found. Some of the monoliths have not only animals carved in relief on them, but in and those animals vary from foxes to cattle to various birds. But some of the monoliths actually are anthropoid or humanoid. They have arms. They have beautiful hands. They have belts. They have loincloths on them. So they're actually huge statues, somewhat similar in many ways in terms of the uh, uh, certain stylistic features to the moai, the big heads and torsos on the Easter Island. Interestingly enough, uh, but but they're very uh, sophisticated. If one found them out of context, probably the typical archaeologist would have thought they were about 1,000 BC rather than 8 to 10,000 BC. They're that sophisticated. They're that beautifully carved. Well, um, aren't there? Isn't there some uh, theories that they might also have uh, some sound interactions with them? Yes, yes, there is. And one thing that's very interesting and adds to the level of sophistication is that these monoliths at Gebekli Tepe, no one really knows exactly to this day how they, you know, what they were like when they were originally built. What I mean by that is that they are these, they're very tall, they're actually very tall and very thin, which is harder to carve than a big chunky monolith. And furthermore, they're set into the bedrock very shallowly, and they actually used a form of cement to cement them into the bedrock, but it's not a situation where they carved down, you know, several meters into the bedrock and set them into place so they wouldn't fall over. They're set very shallowly, you know, just a few inches in some cases, and there's a very good suggestion that they were meant to be sitting there and they could actually vibrate and may have been like huge tuning forks initially, uh, which is a very interesting concept that they may have been actually generating sound or bouncing sound. And we know that in many cases, at least there's a hypothesis, which I think is a good hypothesis in many cases, certain ancient sites, and it 
may have included Quebecois tempe, were meant to hum or resonate or produce sounds that would have an effect on the humans. Like on consciousness? Uh, On consciousness in general? Yes, and having consciousness and affecting your mood, affecting your consciousness, affecting your, shall we say, thought abilities. Mm. I mean, we know to this day, a lot of people don't want to acknowledge it, perhaps, but sound affects mood, affects consciousness, affects thinking ability, uh, it, it affects, we'll call it psychic ability, that type of thing. And... One thing that may have been occurring at Quebecli Tepe, as well as other ancient sites, is that they were using sound in a very sophisticated way. Now, how old is the site definitely? Quebecli Tepe? Yeah. It's definitely, well, the oldest portions are definitely nine to 10,000 BC. The entire site was purposefully buried by 8,000 BC. So one thing that's really interesting about it is it's not like most archaeological sites where it was used, reused, 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 because when that happens, of course, you know, the older portions get destroyed, they get damaged by the reuse, or many archaeological sites, instead of being reused for thousands of years, they're abandoned, but they're simply abandoned, they're left to the wind, they're left to the rain, and they're left to vandalism and they slowly get filled over and covered over. So what archaeologists find is a bunch of ruins, ultimately. Gebekli Tepe is different. It was used and reused for, by my estimate, about 2,000 years or so, uh, maybe longer. But it was, and this is the important point, it was absolutely intentionally, and you can see that geologically, I looked at it with... Uh, Professor Schmidt on site. It was intentionally buried by the people who were using it last, and this was by 8,000 BC. So the whole site was intentionally buried and covered up by 8,000 BC. Before they buried it, they even re erected some of the pillars that looked like they had been knocked over. They put them into position, then buried the whole site under um, essentially a small artificial mountain. Which had a lot of work. serious about burying it. It was a lot of work. Um, As Professor Schmidt said to me, every indication is the time and manpower, human power and human hours that went into burying it may have been as much or more as it took to erect it in the first place. Now, how has mainstream archaeology been dealing with this? Because they can't—they can't just uh, say it's—it's it's a false reading because they've accepted the dating on it. Yeah, they've they... accepted the dating, but it's very interesting. They—they they haven't really accepted the implications of it. It's just starting to sort of work into their consciousness. And I've been following this, and you know, reading the technical literature and whatnot. And they said they don't want to really accept it. They don't want to acknowledge the implications of it. They keep sort of downplaying it. Even Professor Schmidt, and I have great respect for him, but he calls it the world's first temple. And I don't mean to sound the wrong way. Temples are fine, but that's sort of in archaeology and status quo conventional archaeology. In some ways, when you call something a temple, you sort of dismiss it as having any real significance, more or less it's sort of, oh, those primitive guys that were building a, quote, temple. 
unquote, <laughs> and it doesn't really, it sort of indicates a lack of sophistication in some ways, right. that they were just, you know, doing something primitive and worshipping a primitive god, blah, blah, blah. And it's also a way to label something when you don't really know what you're looking at. Uh, so they sort of, this is my impression, they sort of are begrudgingly admitting that it exists, but not wanting to follow through the, with the implications. And I think the implications are pretty straightforward, that it indicates that we had, you know, civilization, what anyone in their right mind, if I could say it that way, not to be nasty, would acknowledge as sophisticated civilization, quite advanced, at a very remote period, thousands of years before the standard story says civilization arose in Egypt and Sumeria. You know, standard story is civilization rose about 3,000 to 4,000 BC at the earliest. Here we have a site that is um, the core of it, the major portion of it's 9 to 10,000 BC. And it didn't just spring from nowhere. There must have been predecessors. There must have been antecedents to it. Well, not only that, but don't the uh, most of these ancient cultures say that they go back to that time period? Oh, all the ancient cultures, and this is another thing, the arrogance, and I'll use that term, the arrogance of the modern classical conventional status quo scholars and historians and archaeologists it amazes me, and again, I don't want to sound nasty, but it amazes me that Egyptologists, they spend their life studying the ancient Egyptians and the culture. This is a classic, sort of the classic Egyptologists in modern times, yet they don't acknowledge what the Egyptians were saying about their own culture, about their own history, because the ancient Egyptians, like many of the uh, classical, when I say classical, the last 5,000 years or so, ancient cultures, they would say that they came from a much earlier culture, that they were a re-emergence of civilization, not the first civilization. And modern scholars have always dismissed such stories as, oh, they were just the myths, you know, the creation myths of the ancient people, not that they would have any real credence, not that they would have any real value. And I think that we're finding more and more that the classical ancients, you know, were right, that they were not the first. They were, as I see it now, a reemergence of civilization after, I'll call it a dark age, of thousands of years. All right, we've got to take a quick 45-second break, and we'll be back with Robert Schock in a minute. The opinions expressed by the host and guests on Where Did the Road Go are their own and do not represent those of WVBR or its management. Join us on the web at wheredidtheroadgo.com where you can send us questions for our live guests via email or the live chat room. You can also check out our upcoming schedule, blog, link section, book reviews, videos, and links to our Twitter, Facebook, iTunes, and much more. That's wheredidtheroadgo.com. And our guest tonight on Where Did the Road Go is Robert Schock author of Forgotten Civilization. Uh, and when did that come out? That came out uh, late 2012, so it's only been a few months now. We're just into 2013, so it's uh, very recent. All right, and uh, one of the big issues you talk about in the book is uh, 
how the sun may have been a factor in the end of the last ice age and the destruction yeah. of this ancient civilization. Yeah, absolutely, because to um, paint the story very broadly, I have no doubt at this point, and this is, again, the culmination of uh, decades of research on my part, starting with the Sphinx, I have no doubt that at the end of the last ice age, the period of uh, eight to 10,000 B.C., uh, roughly, the end of the last ice age and just after, we had uh, early civilization, genuine civilization. We see that in Egypt now, once we peel back all the layers of dynastic Egypt and get back further, we have that at Gebekli Tepe, as we were just talking about in Turkey. And what we have is that early civilization, but it gets knocked out, it gets wiped out. Even when I was um, Koshmit, uh Excavating Gebekli Tepe, he's made comments that, you know, it was covered over, it was lost, the people disappeared, and there was nothing like it, nothing is sophisticated a thousand years later. And so I think we need a real explanation of what happened to those early people. We also know geologically that there are major cataclysms, major climatic changes. There was uh, increased volcanic activity, earthquake activity at the end of the last ice age. The end of the last ice age is best dated to about 9700 B.C., uh, based on, in my opinion, the best geological analyses of sediment cores, ice cores, that type of thing. And it has been a real mystery for a very long time. How do you get such dramatic climate changes over a very, very short period of time? And when I say short period of time, the ice core data in particular that's been developed in just the last 10 years has indicates that you had dramatic climatic changes, incredibly dramatic, incredible melting of glaciers in a period of just two to three years. And that's simply, we say two to three years because you can't resolve it better than that, closer than that in the sediment core data and the ice core data. But literally, it could have been overnight or it could have been within just a couple of weeks. Either way, from a geologic point of view, that's incredibly fast. From a geologist's point of view, 100 years or 1,000 years is incredibly fast for major climate changes like that. But we know it's within just a couple of years. And people have been toying and speculating as to what could cause this, and I think we now have the answer, and that was a major, major solar outburst. Uh, you have to put the geology together with modern astrophysics. We now know that the sun is like any other star. It undergoes periods of quiescence. It undergoes periods of incredible activity. And this seems to be a cycle on the order of about ten to 12,000 years that it undergoes lots of activity, then it becomes more quiescent. It seems to build up internal occult stresses and disequilibrium, and then it has to liberate those again, sort of the equivalent of volcanic activity, to use a um, Earth analogy, and undergoes periods of major, major solar outbursts, and then quiets down again. And, and it would take a massive solar outburst to melt ice caps. The oh, absolutely. Had. We're talking incredibly massive. 
but the, all the indications are that that's what happened at the end of the last ice age. And when I say all the indications, we have the geology, we have cultural evidence, which we can get into, and we have isotope evidence, both from the Earth and actually from the Moon also, from lunar samples, that there was a major, major solar outburst at the end of the last ice age. And we're talking massive discharges, not just big solar flares that people may be familiar with, but what are known as coronal mass ejections, which are big balls of essentially charged or electrified gas, sometimes known as plasma, electrical plasma, and these are thrown off of the sun. The sun is always discharging particles, electrically charged particles. It's known as a solar wind, but you have these big balls or bursts of gas that are given off sometimes, coronal mass ejections, and they can hit the Earth. And this appears to be what happened at the end of last ice age, that you had a combination of major solar outbursts, and they intersected with the Earth. The Earth was hit by them, and it would have disrupted the atmosphere, it would have disrupted the magnetosphere, it would have had tremendous climatic changes. In some cases, because you had so many charged particles entering the atmosphere and being funneled by the magnetosphere, they, it would have come down. In some cases, it's huge uh, discharge structures, what you would think of as lightning, sort of like lightning, huge lightning bolts hitting the surface. Technically, they wouldn't be lightning, but they would be electrical discharges hitting the surface. In fact, very recently, when I say recently, within the last year, at several sites around the world that are at the um, end of that last ice age, day to the end of the last ice age, vitrification, rock that was subjected to incredibly high temperatures to the point where it melted and then re-solidified has been found at archaeological sites, uh, which... You know, I think the only good explanation for it is a major solar outburst. The other competing explanation that some people have suggested is that a comet exploded mm. and caused some of these effects. The thing about comet is it doesn't give all the effects that you need to end a left end an ice age. It doesn't give the same isotope signature as you get with a major solar outburst. So I think it was a major solar outburst at the very end of the last ice age. Interestingly, just, just to complete the story, about 1,200 years before the end of the last ice age, there is good evidence for a comet or meteorite exploding in the atmosphere, which actually caused a temporary cooling effect. Um, it, it's, it's very actually very interesting at the end of the last ice age you it sort of started to warm, then you have a dramatic cooling effect, and then snap a warming effect at 9700 BC. And that must have devastated any civilizations that were oh, around. Oh, it would have devastated any civilization because you would have had these electrical discharges. They would not only melt rock, the vitrification I was talking about, they would melt glaciers in a snap. When you melt glaciers in a snap, there's a lot of ramifications because you release all kinds of pressure from the crust of the Earth. This uh, has ramifications in terms of setting off earthquakes, 
uh, increased volcanic activity. We actually see this in Iceland now, so this is not just theoretical. In Iceland, uh, it has increased volcanic and earthquake activity due to the pressure being released as the glacier there melts, the major glacier, and that's not melting very quickly compared to ice, end of the ice, last ice age conditions. Also, uh, forest fires would have been set, and you would have had literal incineration in some parts of the earth, not everywhere. So think of a tornado that sets down certain places and not other places. But uh, it, it would have been very rough. And something that's very important is it would have messed up the magnetosphere and the um, uh, stratosphere, the uh, ozone layer, for instance, in particular. So you would have had increased levels of radiation at the surface of the Earth. And there's been some very nice modeling of what happened on the surface of the Earth or could have happened by a physicist who I have a lot of respect for, Dr. Paul Violetta. And he has calculated that radiation levels due to this event could have been so high on the surface of the Earth that exposures in some cases could have killed off large mammals, things like mastodons and mammoth, which is exactly what we see. And another large mammal is humans. So humans could have suffered badly. The best way to escape it would be to go underground into natural caves or to carve artificial shelters in stone or you know into the into uh, you know cliffs that type of thing and interestingly uh, some archaeologists have pointed out that at the end of the last ice age inexplicably to them people were <laughs> going into caves and building underground you know shelters well you so, have and, underground cities in uh, Turkey oh yeah in fact uh, when I when I go back to Turkey, uh, I once again will be looking at these. I, I, I think I mentioned that um, I'm going in June and people are welcome to join me if they like. But in Cappadocia and Turkey, you have these underground city complexes. Some of them are eight stories or more below ground, you know, different levels. And I believe that this goes back, the earliest portions of them go back to the end of the last ice age. And you know, people carried a remembrance of what happened for a very long time, thinking this could happen again, and it will happen again. And I also want to make the point that you don't just have one major solar outburst. You have one, then the sun sort of calms down, but then you have another one, so they sort of come in waves. So it's not like it wouldn't kill everyone and no one's left. Um, you know, it would come in waves, it would cause destruction, sort of, I hate to use a war analogy, but sort of like an air, you know, bombing raid. They right. come and they bomb, then they let up, but you you learn, you make preparations for the next time. <laughs> and and don't the Hopi um, Indians also have a story of the ant people who sa saved them from this? Yes, the ant people saved them from this, and they have the legend that their ancestors emerged from below ground. Uh, in fact, more than one culture around the world has has that legend that uh, their ancestors lived in caves. I was on Easter Island recently. I've been to Easter Island with my wife a couple of times. And unsolicited, he had no clue where I was coming from. We weren't talking about this. But one of our guides talked about um, how one of the legends on Easter Island or one of the ancestral uh, stories is that 
people lived in the caves on East Round. There are lots of caves on East Round. They're natural caves. But they were clearly used by the inhabitants because they've been modified, that type of thing. How the people had to live in caves for a thousand years because conditions were so bad on the surface. Now, do you, um, do you want to talk a little about the Rongo Rongo script? Yeah, and I would, the because that ties right in. So, so I learned this story on East Rome, which ties right in with what I've been talking about. And he had no clue I was interested in such things. And what we have on Easter Island, which is another piece of the puzzle, is the Rongo Rongo script. And the Rongo Rongo script is a sort of hieroglyphic script. That's how it's been described. And it sort of has these weird, we'll call them not exactly stick figures, but figures of humans and bird-headed, humanoid shapes, etc., etc. It turns out, when you have a major solar outburst, major, major solar outburst, and we've not seen anything this major in recorded history. The closest we have is the Carrington event in 1859, which would have been orders of magnitude less than we're talking about for the end of the last ice age. But when you have a major solar outburst, you see configurations in the sky. People should think of the aurora borealis, the northern lights or the southern lights of aurora australialis. When you have major solar outbursts with major electrical discharges, these structures, these things you see in the sky become more distinct. And a fellow at Los Alamos National Laboratory, Dr. Anthony Peratt, has done a lot of work modeling exactly what you would see in the sky during a major, major solar outburst. And what you would see would could be interpreted, would look sort of like stick figures, humanoid stick figures, but with weird shapes, with sort of extra sort of dots on their sides. A lot of times they would take on sort of bird head shapes. Uh, you would also get what can be referred to as sort of donut shapes, cascading shapes, and this has to do with electrical properties and how they're pinched, literally pinched by magnetic fields, that type of thing. And in fact, these have been seen during made, not a major solar outburst, as we're talking about the last ice age, but the largest solar outburst in historical times, the Carrington event in 1859. People will describe seeing just these types of figures. It turns out that the Rongo Rongo script also records such figures, such configurations. And my wife, Katie, first pointed this out, that she said to me, look, the Rongo Rongo looks just like the configurations that Dr. Perot has been modeling for major solar outbursts. I start looking at it, and what I think we have with the Rongo Rongo is, in fact, initially, and it's been passed down, it's been copied and recopied and recopied again, so it may have lost something in the copying, you know, iterations, but I think it started out as essentially a record of a solar outburst and what you would see in the sky, and, and it's that very clearly. Likewise, the moai, the big heads and torsos on Easter Island, look up to the sky, and one of the traditional names for them and the island is eyes gazing at the sky. They have indigenous records of, you know, something was happening in the sky when the Europeans first passed 
the natives, the Eastern Islanders, the Rapa Nui about the Rongo Rongo and what it meant. They couldn't really explain it, but they pointed up to the sky and indicated it had something to do with the sky. So I think this starts to fit together, and Dr. Perot has found similar types of figures, similar to the Rongo Rongo, around the world in, carved onto rocks. Uh, Petroglyphs are called essentially engravings on rocks going back thousands and thousands of years, I believe back to the end of the last ice age, apparently recording what people were seeing in the sky. And he's even been able to model them and show that these configurations and the orientations of the rock engravings tie together and the people would have been in the, had the right, what he calls a field of view to see the configurations as they would uh, come in from a solar outburst. Now, do you think... All ties together, and I think this wiped out civilization, and we essentially went into a major dark age for thousands of years before the reemergence of civilization about, you know, 3,000 to 4,000 B.C. Do you, do you think the, uh, like, for instance, in uh, Mohandarho and uh, Harappa in India... The uh -huh. cities are said to be radioactive. Yes, exactly. And um, some of this could tie back because you would have uh, uh, increased radiation levels on the surface. That's very clear. This could have caused damage, that type of thing. And I think it also ties in with what we see. I mentioned vitrification before, but in um, northern latitudes, especially in Scotland, a lot of them have been preserved what are known as vitrified forts where you have a surface vitrification, what that means is that something very intense, very intense heat and electrical arcing or electrical discharges could cause that. Very intense heat melted just the surfaces of rocks and then it re-solidified as glass, vitrified. That's what it means. And this whole uh, concept of vitrified, they call them vitrified castles or vitrified forts. I've looked at some of them, and you can see that uh, they're vitrified. You can in, even reconstruct how whatever was causing it came from one side, came from one direction in the sky, and um, only caused certain surfaces to uh, be vitrified. And getting back to what you were talking about, I think this could explain some of the... Um, radioactivity that you see in some cases at certain sites. Now, <clears throat> the sites in Scotland, though, wouldn't those be under the ice cap at the time that this solar outburst hit? No, not necessarily, because the, um, the uh, glaciers did not uh, 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 spread evenly all over the surface. In some cases, they retreated. So in, in the U.K., you had places that were exposed. Ah. Uh, that type of thing. So it it wasn't uh, it wasn't as widespread as uh, uh, you know some people think. You have you have to be careful with that. I see. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, because we think of the ice age and some the popular view is oh the world's totally covered with ice. No, it wasn't totally covered with ice. It's just that the ex uh, glaciers extended further. Well, now uh, the further latitudes than they do now. So, you, and it depends where you are and at what time in the ice age. And and there's also the whole pole shift theory that because both uh, Alaska and Siberia and Lesser Antarctica seem to be ice free and fairly warm during the last ice age, people proposed that the whole Earth had shifted. Yes, uh, yeah, 
there's a lot of issues because there's a pole shift, there's a magnetic um, pole versus the actual spin axis, and um, then you also have to worry about timing, and are you talking the end of the last ice age, 9700 BC, or are you talking a previous ice age, because we had a whole series of ice ages, right? and so, you know, it, a lot of times, and, and I don't want to sound the wrong way, but I get frustrated with certain, how should we say, popular accounts that confuse what was happening, say, at the end of the last ice age with maybe what was happening, say, 30,000 B.C., mm. that type of thing, and they sort of lump it all together. Well, I, th- it, I think... Gets, it, it gets very complex, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. But that's real yeah. life. Um, Randall Carlson had actually suggested that uh, perhaps... What caused the pole shift was the sudden melting of the ice from a solar outburst, and then the... Yeah, and then that shift of weight, that type yeah. of thing. Yeah, exactly, which, which you know, there, there could... Uh, I don't think we have a good handle right now on all the ramifications of uh, um, uh, major melting and major solar outbursts. Like I said, we've not experienced such a uh, major, major solar outburst in historical times, although, I hate to say it, we may well... Um, because all the indications are that the sun is becoming very active now once again. I mentioned the Carrington event in 1859, which was really two coronal mass ejections, very moderate on a geological and astrophysical scale, but they hit the Earth, they caused uh, major, we'll call it northern lights, aurora borealis at very low latitudes, so people saw it even in Cuba, that type of thing which they normally would not. It uh, caused major changes in the uh, magnetosphere and the electrical field of the Earth, the magnetic field of the Earth. It tried the uh, telegraph lines at this at that time. If we had even a Carrington event now, it would you know, be devastating to modern civilization. Now, but all, all the indications are is that the sun is getting more active right now. And, and I think that's something people miss. Like, uh, people don't realize how important it is to know whether or not there was a civilization. And if they were so wiped off the earth, what happened to them and could it happen to us? Yeah, I, I agree. To me, it's not just, uh, uh, well, isn't that interesting to study these civilizations? Again, I don't mean to badmouth Egyptologists, but I've met a lot of Egyptologists now and talked to them and spoken at their conferences. And a lot of them, and I just use Egyptologists as an example, they study these ancient civilizations, but it's almost, I use the term, voyeuristic. It's sort of, oh, aren't they interesting, these primitive people, and it's sort of neat to study them. But, of course, we're so much smarter. We're not really going to learn anything from them. It's just sort of interesting to study their primitive ways. And I, I think that's uh, very um you know, wrong attitude, I don't think. And possibly think, dangerous. Uh, I, uh, hmm? And possibly dangerous. And possibly dangerous, because I think we did have a uh, real sophisticated civilization back then. They were no dumber than us. They were different than us, maybe in their technology. And they were devastated by natural changes, by things that were happening in the sun and the effects on the earth. And they could not control it. And frankly, when it happens again, and I have no doubt as a geologist it will happen again, we're not going to be able to control it. And we are going to be ill-prepared if we don't start taking these things seriously. And not only will we be ill-prepared 
and we could be utterly devastated as were those earlier civilizations, but we may actually be making ourselves more vulnerable uh, by the day, by the hour, because we are so dependent on our electronics, um, you know, GPS, everything from GPS, um, global positioning systems, to satellites for communication, to computers and phones and the electrical grid, and we are, to me, on a collision course because we're making ourselves more and more vulnerable to a major solar outburst. A major solar outburst, uh, one of the biggest ramifications is going to be uh, electrical and magnetic properties, you know, changes that will occur. And um, essentially, it's an electrical magnetic event, and that will uh, destroy... Uh, our sophisticated electrical and electronic systems that will overload grids, for instance, uh, power grids, and blow out transformers. You know, if you start blowing out transformers left and right, the grid system goes down. If you don't have electricity, our modern civilization is um, not going to be in good shape, I'll put it that way. <laughs> to say the least. Uh, you don't have transportation, you don't have heat, you don't have... Um, water supplies, you, you know, I'm here in Boston or if you're in New York or any big city, your subways start flooding, you can't pump gasoline, you can't run backup generators once you run out of fuel and there's no way to distribute fuel. You can't even repair the system because you need electricity to run the factories to make new transformers to repair the ones that blew out. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to sound like a scaremonger or a doomsayer, but I think we need to take some of these things seriously. Yeah, and we can or, or, you know, look at our power plants. When you lose electricity, people don't realize this. A nuclear power plant makes electricity. Yes, it does, but it's also dependent on being supplied by um, electrical grid system to run coolers to run. Um, all kinds of, you know, equipment associated with the power plant. And look at something like Fukushima. Yeah. The power gets knocked out and you start, you know, I think that's been downplayed and covered up how bad it was. Yeah. So, well, you know, we, 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 you know, we've, we've had a few good centuries. This is the way I see as a geologist. We've had a few good centuries of uh, a very stable, relatively inactive sun, very stable conditions on the surface of the Earth, geologically even, with not that many earthquakes and tsunamis and whatnot. You know, we've just seen it really nice, calm times for a few centuries, and we as a civilization have sort of concluded, well, that's the way it always is, and that's not the case geologically or astrophysically. Now, um, I wanted to cover some of the stuff that you talk about in the last chapter of your book, um, which is kind of like the state of science and why, oh, yeah. why some of these things are the way they are, why people aren't taking this stuff seriously where they need to. Um, and as you said, when you got into this, you, you were kind of naive. You expected that if you followed the facts and presented the evidence, it would be accepted as it should be if science worked the way it does. Right, and the problem is, and I think I could say it in a nutshell, science... There's, there's two sciences, I'll put it this way. There's the ideal science that you go by the evidence, you go by the data, and you have your models, you have your hypotheses, you have your theories, and if the data 
is different and discrepant with the theory, you should get rid of the theory, you should revise, et cetera, et cetera. That's the classic textbook model. The reality is that, of course, science is pursued by scientists, scientists are human, and there's so much politics and science and academia in general, uh, so much in the way of vested interests. People have their own paradigms, they have their own worldviews, they have their research that they want to protect, at some, in some cases at all costs. So inconvenient data, data that's anomalous, data that does not agree with their theory, data that does not agree with um, their paradigm, their worldview, their, you know, how they see the world, uh, is often ignored or um, purposefully uh, dismissed, uh, just just not acknowledged. Uh, I use the example in the book, for instance, Nobel Prizes in science are, I guess, a wonderful thing to win. I'd certainly love to win one, but on the other hand, when something wins a Nobel Prize, it becomes dogma. That that theory becomes dogma. Well, how can you even question uh, some a theory or quote discovery unquote when someone won a Nobel Prize for it? In fact, people can win Nobel prizes for things that are wrong. Uh, hmm. And. and um, you know, there are just so many vested interests. It's very hard to, I think, criticize yourself. It's, uh, we have a peer review system where the gatekeepers, sometimes people use that term of knowledge or what is accepted, is controlled by vested interests. They're going to accept and they're going to support what they believe in, what supports their own research, what supports their own pet theories. Uh, one classic case, I think, and I talk about this in Forgotten Civilization, is the whole issue of global warming. Now, I don't want to be misquoted or misunderstood. Global warming is absolutely real. The Earth is heating up at the moment. But what seems not to be the case when you actually look at the data is that it's not necessarily all or even primarily human-induced. It's not necessarily just human greenhouse gases that are causing global warming. We know that the Earth cycles through warm and cold periods. We have glaciers, we have interglacials, we have the end of the last ice age, long before humans had the ability to add significant amounts of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. And we have very good data going back thousands of years that solar activity correlates with climatic changes. So there's something else going on. It's not just, and I don't want to badmouth anyone, but it's not just Al Gore's theory of um, human-induced global warming, even if he did win a Nobel Prize for that. And, and that's not to say we shouldn't clean up the planet. We should no, no, no. I want to say there are very good reasons to clean up the planet. I'm a geologist. I know um, very strongly. I mean, we should not be using fossil fuels as we are. Uh, and there are other reasons besides global warming. There are limited supplies. They're causing major pollution. Otherwise, they're just bad all around. So there's every reason. And, in fact, the data indicates that the human component, there is a human component to global warming, which has really kicked in since the 1980s or so, 
But it's, that is not the whole story. That's maybe 20, 30% of the story. It's not 100% as um, some people would have you believe. And to say what I'm saying right now, you know, if I weren't tenured, <laughs> they might use that as a reason not to tenure me. And to say what I'm saying, you know, certain people with vested interest, and this gets back to it, if they have a huge multi-million dollar grant to study global warming, and they come out with the conclusion, well, it's not primarily human-induced, they run the risk of losing their job, losing their grant, because they're saying they're going against what the standard paradigm is, and it's actually a multi billion, even trillion, multi-trillion dollar industry right now, supporting human-induced global warming and the ramifications, which you know, has all kinds of economic implications of what we should be doing. So again, my point is not to pick on that particular subject, but there are lots of vested interests, there are lots of economic interests in certain paradigms, in certain worldviews, in certain you know, promoting certain theories and dismissing other theories. Well, and that's probably kind of the, the bee's nest you disturbed in Egypt, where they have their set theories, their set ideas, that's, and you basically exactly came in it. and said, hey, you're wrong. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. I mean, people don't like being told they're wrong. They don't like it, you know, and I learned this the hard way. They don't, they don't like the suggestion that maybe what they've believed all along, what they've written lots of papers about, what they've, uh, uh, you know, put into print, and, you know, that's the ultimate academia, mm -hmm. uh, that it could be wrong, and that they may have to retract it, that they may have to change their mind, that they may have to revise, you know, what they had, you know, in the, using the colloquialism, you know, set in stone. And right. They, they don't want to hear that. Plus, I, I, you... you have to have like a political uh, issue there too where Egypt doesn't want to be told that maybe Egyptians didn't make the Sphinx. Yes, that's the other thing. When I first came out with this, for instance, Zahid Hawass, he's now out of power but still in Egypt, he was in charge of antiquities in Egypt in the Mubarak regime. He, um, he made all kinds of nasty comments about how I was stealing Egypt from the Egyptians he uh, charged me, he didn't think I'd ever find out about this because he did it in Arabic in the Arabic newspapers. He said I was, I forget, something like a Zionist agent working for Israel trying to destroy Egyptian history and stuff <laughs> like that. And it got very, very nasty. Of course, you know, that's not the case at all. And I thought, as I think I said before, I thought I was just giving them more history. Right, you know? right. Well, that's because yeah, I was extending their history. I wasn't stealing anything. I was giving them more, not less. <laughs> but you, you upset a paradigm that they had been set on for, you know, a century. It, exactly, exactly. So I upset their paradigm for the classical Egyptologist. And then it's even, it also gets more involved because you get some people who, um, in Egypt, you know, they're, and I'm not saying anything bad about Muslims or Islam, but they frankly don't care about anything before Mohammed. Mm. And just like in America, we have lots of people who, you find an ancient Indian Native American burial mound, a lot of people in America couldn't care less. They say, bulldoze it over and build a shopping mall. Right. You know, and you, you have the same attitude in Egypt, and so it only makes matters worse when you say, no, not only do we have ancient Egyptian stuff, but 
this goes back even further, it's even more important, <laughs> and that's the last thing they want to hear in some cases from a very pragmatic point of view. Right. They, and they, they get rid of, I mean, I've had Egyptians tell me, PhD, I had a PhD Egyptian tell me once that he thought the best thing to do with the pyramids would be to just rip them apart and build um, a huge air-conditioned mall there like they have in Dubai and you know, attract business. Wow. I know. And this, that's the guy with the PhD. Do, do you ever look at the way we've treated these ancient monuments and ancient sites over the years and just think that we're just like stupid children who don't understand what we're dealing with? Oh, I think that's very much the case. I've more and more come to that conclusion that we are literally kids, we're literally children, and um, this sort of reminds me, I think I have a, the quote in Plato, how, you know, we've gone through, we, humanity, has gone through these cycles before, and every time we start to learn, we start to figure out what happens, we get wiped out and we get knocked back. <laughs> so we sort of become children again. Um, and yeah, I think I think we um, really misinterpret, we don't give enough credit uh, to the earlier, we'll call it cycles of civilization, just how sophisticated they were. You know, think of, think of our civilization. If everything gets wiped out, incinerated, you know, destroyed, and all you have is a few fragments here and there of some buildings and a little bit of hardware that you don't really know how to interpret. You know, what 10,000 years from now, what would um, people make of it? Right, right. They would have no context for it. They'd have no context. They'd have no clue. And, you know, every building, I guess, that was big, they would call temple. <laughs> Um, now you've done work. Uh, you've done some research on psychic phenomenon. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, you've shown that also correlates with the sun. That is true. That is true. Um, psychic phenomena uh, correlate uh, with the sun, and what's significant is it correlates with the sun. It correlates with uh, geomagnetic patterns, which are you know the sun effects. So uh, you get different psychic phenomena uh, very strongly associated with um, uh, basically the geomagnetic field that you have on the Earth, which is really interesting because, of course, the whole business of psychic phenomena, things like telepath, tel telepathy, telepathic communication, we'll call it, we'll just, I'll just use a general term, clairvoyance, that type of thing, is, you know, among scholars, of a traditional ilk, you know, classic academics, they don't even talk about this. They just dismiss it outright. They won't even look at the evidence for it. So I think it's even more important because you have over a hundred years of well-documented incidents of uh, psychic nature, should we say, mm -hmm. and very careful studies in a couple of cases have been done of when these occurred, where they were occurring, that type of thing, and then you can independently look at the solar activity, the geomagnetic activity, and see if there's a correlation or not. And in fact, there's a very, very strong, robust correlation, which to me has real implications, not only for uh, mechanism or influence on psychic phenomena, but for the reality of the psychic psychic phenomena themselves, because it's very hard to argue that for over a hundred years people have been faking this and making it up, and somehow they 
there's been this huge conspiracy that they would always have certain types of psychic phenomena when the geomagnetic field was of a certain nature. Do you see what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, and the only thing that makes sense is, yes, these phenomena are real, and they um, correlate with other natural phenomena, which, you know, if you... If you're willing to be open-minded and think about logically, that makes a lot of sense. We are influenced by our environment. We're influenced uh, uh, by the uh, electrical fields around us, the geomagnetic fields around us, and we are essentially electrical beings. That's well, how our cells work. It, it, that's, it how our, that's how our hardware, I'll call it that way, works. <laughs> it, it also seems like... You know, they, they, they discovered the Higgs boson, and the evidence for it is very flimsy, very, very subtle. Oh, yet, yeah. Yet psi evidence, psychic abilities, have far right. more deep evidence to it, and that's dismissed. Yeah, it is, it's very interesting. And um, this is uh, uh, just, just for people now, if they go to my website... Uh, they should definitely read Forgotten Civilization. As you said, I talk about some of these things in the last chapter, put it together. But I've done a lot of research on um, parapsychology, psych phenomena. I actually did an anthology and commentary called The Parapsychology Revolution. And it's very interesting. I want to make two quick points. One is that the evidence for psi, the evidence for psychic phenomena is very strong, very consistent, very robust, including both anecdotal evidence, but anecdotal evidence is evidence, and a lot of it is very well documented. It's just like, just like volcanoes, you could call anecdotal evidence. You can't get a volcano to erupt on command, but when they erupt, they're definitely erupting, <laughs> and you can measure that, you can study that. Or a meteorite falling out of the atmosphere, you know, falling into the atmosphere, falling from outer space. You can't do that in the lab. You can't reproduce that, and you can't just snap your fingers and say, I want a meteorite to fall now. So that's also anecdotal evidence, but it's still real evidence. A lot of people don't realize that. But when you look at the evidence for psi, both natural evidence or anecdotal evidence and laboratory studies, it's very robust. And when you have studies, for instance, of a new medicine for heart attacks or to ward off this or that disease, often they will find that it has a small but persistent or perceptible effect, and they will say it's a huge breakthrough because it reduces heart attacks by, you know, 20% or something like that in a study of 10,000 people. And when you have a study of psi or psychic phenomena, often you have results that are much stronger, much more robust, yet they will dismiss them as, um, uh, you know, such a small effect that doesn't really count for anything, can't really be real. <laughs> and there you have your paradigms playing yeah. into effect because, you know, it's, a, it's hypocritical. It's a double standard. Uh, stronger evidence for psi phenomena will be dismissed than much weaker evidence for some new drug that someone wants to put on the market. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention, just historically, it's interesting. 
a lot of the very sophisticated statistical techniques that are used in science nowadays, used in medicine, used in all kinds of studies and analyses, actually originated with the study of psychic phenomena in really? the 19th, early 20th century, where they realized the early students of the phenomenon, some of whom were Nobel Prize winners, like... Um, uh, Richet, the, um, who was a physiologist and Nobel Prize winner, devoted much of his energy in the early 20th century to the study of psychic phenomena. They realized that some of these effects are subtle but persistent, and you need really good statistical analysis to make the case for them. And they developed a lot of modern statistics that is accepted for everything else now than the very phenomena they were developed initially to study. Wow. All right. Which, um, you know, again, I think it shows people's paradigms and worldviews and what irrationally, I would say, they are unwilling to study just because it doesn't it doesn't match their worldview. Right. They just and, don't want to accept it. And that's not how science is supposed to work. No, it's not at all. I mean, you're supposed to be objective, but... I'll tell you, most scientists I know, they're not. <laughs> they're objective within a certain realm, and after that, all their own biases kick in. All right. Well, um, give your website one more time so people can uh, check out your stuff. Yep. It's www.robertshock, and that's spelled R-O-B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-C-H.com. And I hope people will go there. You'll see links to my latest book and my other books. And if anyone's interested in joining me on a fantastic trip to Turkey in June, uh, I also have a link to that. And what, what are the dates on that? That is June, off the top of my head, June 15th through 28th. Yeah, oh. June 15th through 28th. And you'll and be going, where will uh, you be going on the whole tour? Uh, oh, in Turkey? Yeah. Well, we start in Istanbul. And Istanbul is, you know, or Constantinople, Byzantium. And we'll spend a day or two in Istanbul, get ourselves oriented, see the sites there, which is incredible. And then we travel by bus. We travel as a group by bus through Turkey, working our way east all the way to Urfa and Gebekli Tepe, the site I was talking about, is just outside of Urfa. And Urfa, as a side note, is a goes back to Bible times. It's actually the city where the patriarch Abraham, of um, really the founder, in some ways a founding uh, figure for uh, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, he came from Urfa huh. in um, southeastern Turkey. And Gebekli Tepe, this incredible site, eight to ten thousand BC, is about a twenty-minute drive outside of Urfa. So that's so we go from Istanbul to Urfa and everything in between. We look at a number of ancient sites. We do everything from Greco-Roman sites, Greco-Roman sites like Ephesus. We uh, we look at um, ancient Troy, the genuine ancient Troy. We go into Cappadocia, and we see. Um, we see the underground cities, that type of thing. We actually will take balloon rides over Cappadocia to see oh. it from the air, which is an incredible experience. If you've never done that, you have. everyone has to do that at some point. We'll take a boat ride up some of the rivers because there are certain ancient sites that you um, 
have to take a boat up to. Some of them are actually underwater, and you can see it from the boat under the crystal clear water. We'll go to a place called Chattelhuyuk, which very few people get to go to, which is about 7,000 B.C. Wow. I don't know. There's just so much. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but it's really uh, sort of a trip back in time, and, and also uh, for those that are interested in I've had you know, 100% interest on previous trips. I give um, uh, sort of talks and lectures along the way to put everything into context so people understand what they're seeing and how it ties in and ties in with this uh, uh, new picture of you know pushing civilization and what we know back in time. All right. Again, well, I, I have yeah. one more question for you before I let you go. When, sure. you, when you started all of this, could you have imagined where you were going to end up at this point? No, I really didn't. I really didn't. I was naive once again. <laughs> and, you know, when I first went to Egypt with John Anthony West, I thought, oh, you know, this will be nice. I'll go on a little excursion to Egypt. It'll be my one and only time to Egypt. I didn't think I'd be going back and back and back and back and then expanding to all kinds of other countries looking at uh the origins of ancient civilization. So now it's been a real journey. Regret a minute of it? No, not at all. Not at all. I don't even regret the times I was called a pseudoscientist and people were spitting in my face, <laughs> literally. And now sometimes people say to me, and this shows, I don't want to sound the wrong way, but how naive some people can be, or they don't understand the infighting of academia. I've had more than one person say to me, independently of each other, well, now that you know, Everything's established. You've you really made the case for the Spanish. We now have the confirmation with the Bekele Tepe. I bet those Egyptologists they must have uh, they must have apologized to you by now, right? No, <laughs> <laughs> that's not the way it works. I, I don't ever expect an apology. Yeah, well. Yeah. All right. Um, all I can expect, the best I can expect, is a begrudging, you know, no longer calling me names. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for going a little longer with us. Oh, no problem. It's uh, my pleasure. That's right. And this week on Where Did the Road Go, we're going to be talking to Robert Schock. And uh, this tonight's interview is actually going to go for two hours, uh, as opposed to the standard hour, which usually ends up being about an hour 15 anyway. So, uh, yeah, we're going to be going to 1 a.m. with Robert. Are you, are you with us, Robert? I am. I'm good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you back. Uh, I'm pretty sure we, we got through a fraction of what I actually wanted to talk to you about the first time we had you on. So I'm glad you uh, were willing to come back on. That's my pleasure. And uh, you have, uh, let's let's get to this first. You have a tour going on in a couple weeks in Turkey. I do. We leave in, um, boy, you know, I'm terrible at the exact dates, but we leave in just under two weeks. So this is really the last opportunity. If people want to sign up, they should go to my website. And I think you have links to that also. I do, Robert, robertshock.com, and uh, that's on wheretheroadgo.com. Exactly. Uh, your, your turkey tour goes from the 15th to the 28th of June. Right. That's right. The 15th through the 28th of June sounds right. And uh, we will be starting in Istanbul and then working our way to the east, ending in Urfa and Gebekli Tepe, this incredible site that we talked about last time, That's which is 12,000 years old, really the oldest um, site representing, should we say, civilization, ancient civilization in the world at this point. Really incredible, really sophisticated site. Uh, Turkey is just, I can't say enough good things about Turkey. If you're interested in the ancient uh, civilizations, ancient mysteries, 
will be uh, going to Cappadocia, for instance. In- Turkey is just an incredible area. Um, so we'll be covering everything from, you know, classic Istanbul, and uh, we'll be visiting some of the uh, ancient sites that figure in the Bible, uh, all the way back to these very, very ancient sites uh, going back to the end of the last ice age. Wow. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about Cappadocia? Uh, Cappadocia, is that right? Cappadocia is a... Uh, region in um, really central Anatolia, central Turkey, and there one of the things that's known for are these incredible underground cities. Uh, these cities, in some cases, are eight stories or more deep underground. We'll be going into some of them, taking a look at it firsthand, and they're a real mystery as to why they were created. But people that have read my book, Forgotten Civilization. They'll sort of know the answer to why I think they were created. Uh, a direct response to major solar outbursts, and this is a way to escape from uh, solar flares, solar outbursts that we we human humanity experienced in the distant past. Um, no. go on. Do we go on? Do we know who built them? No, people don't. People argue about that. In fact, that's one of the great mysteries of classical archaeology. They talk about you know they really don't know who. Built them. We know that they were used even in Byzantine and Roman times and Greek times, but that seems to be a reuse that uh, they were actually much older. Like many of these ancient structures, they were being used and they were being reused and reused again. And I believe that they the earliest um, versions of them, the beginning of this actually goes back uh, to the end of last ice age, probably Gebekli Tepe time, about 12,000 years ago. Oh. So some of them, they have very, very um, ancient precedents. And, you know, like cathedrals, like other important sites, as I said, they were used and reused and reused again. Hmm. Yeah, and we haven't explored much of these underground cities, have we? No, no. In fact, uh, very little is really known about them. Uh, only a few have been explored. It's been estimated that there might be as many as 200 underground cities in the Cappadocia region. Wow. So, <laughs> it's really incredible. And also, uh, some of them, not, not the full cities, but there's still, and we'll see this on the tour, there's still uh, homes that are built into the rock lifts, the rock faces, and uh, you know, some of these are thousands of years old, yet people still live in them to this day. Um, hmm. it's, it's really, you know, it's a different perspective than we have here in America, where everything is so new. Right, right. Well, everything is so new, but we do have ancient mounds and things like that. that- uh, yeah, we have... Every- that's what, yeah, of course, we have ancient mounds and whatnot, but I mean, in general, American cities, American houses, that type of thing are very new. Yeah. Um, I live in Boston, and uh, Boston is one of the older cities in the country because it goes back to, it goes back to 1630. Well, 1630 is virtually nothing. Yeah. <laughs> when you're talking, you know, Europe and the Middle East and the ancient civilizations that have lived there. And, you know, I was just in the UK. I was just in Glastonbury, and I'm talking to someone casually, and she's talking about a house that she's purchasing and part of the house is over 400 years old and that's not even particularly old for that part of the world wow um now uh i had talked to andrew collins a few weeks ago and he was talking about quebecway tepe and said that some of the heath believes that some of it was buried parts at a time and then they'd build a new section after burying an old section or be building a new section is is that anything you're familiar with uh, yeah, actually, I, when I was just at uh, Megalithomania in Glastonbury, uh, Andrew Collins and I both um, uh, spoke, and I will say that I disagree with Andrew Collins, with all due respect, on some of his interpretations of Gebekli Tepe. He, he sees it somewhat differently than I 
should we say. Hmm. Uh, parts of it, it's not clear that parts of it stratigraphically were buried and then other parts were built, buried and built. He, he sees it as a series where they were building one stone enclosure, then burying it, then building another one, burying it, that type of thing. Right. I think all the evidence actually indicates that this is not the, not the situation whatsoever. What you have at Beckley Tepe are a number of stone circles, should we say, sort of Stonehenge-like, and they were built, and then others were built, and others were built, and they were built to a certain extent progressively, one after another, because they're realigning them uh, based on processional changes, mm-hmm. you know, changes in the stars and the orientations. And I actually, frankly, disagree with what Andrew Collins thinks they're oriented to, and we can talk about that also. If- yeah, well, he, he said that he feels they're all aligned to Cygnus and Deneb in Ex- particular. He thinks everything in the world is aligned to Cygnus. They <laughs> <laughs> sound the wrong way, uh, but we can get to that if you. Okay, uh, sure. I mean, if you want to, if you want to explain your view on it, I'd love to hear it. Yeah. Uh, essentially, what you have is a number of uh, stone circles. Think of Stonehenge stone circles. I was just at Stonehenge a week or two ago with the Glastonbury uh, megalithomania. Stonehenge consists of pillars that are freestanding, and that's what you have at Quebecle Tepe. Right. They build in walls between them, essentially, as I see it, as essentially turning into defensive-type structure. And they were trying to support the walls, and others had it's very clear that this is the secondary building of the Quebecle Tepe structures, and something's happening and something somewhat uh, catastrophic, should we say. There's clearly something going on. Um, it's a different nature of building. It's a different style of building. It's like they're reinforcing. They're virtually turning it into what I would call fallout shelters just to give people a sense of what's going on. So they're going from something that is purely, you could think of it as purely, um, uh, I believe, astronomical in function to something that is a bit fortified, if you would. Mm-hmm. And then after that, it, it becomes clear that they fill in the whole thing simultaneously. They fill it all in, uh, in the way I see it, is essentially as an act of desperation because they had tried to fortify that, tried to uh, build it up to is every indication I believe that they're experiencing times cataclysmic times and they tried to build it up, they tried to reinforce it, if you would, and then eventually they just cover the whole thing over in mass. And at that point they build essentially an artificial mountain over the entire complex, which is about three hundred meter more in diameter. Uh, yeah. Right. How tall it was originally. Hmm. Um, this is pretty well established. And, you know, I, I, with all due respect to Andrew Collins, he's a friend. I like him a lot, but that doesn't mean we agree with everything. Well, sure. He sees uh, Gebekli Tepe as oriented toward uh, Cygnus, the swan in the sky. Mm-hmm. And uh, his basis for that is, to, in my opinion, virtually incomprehensible. Uh, I see it as oriented astronomical alignments uh, and I have hypothesized tentatively that the primary alignment was Orion because when you look at the central pillars of Gebekli Tepe they are facing toward the south it's very clear because they are anthropomorphic they have arms and hands 
and they're, you can see from their hands down toward their belly, and they have uh, belts, beautiful belts and loincloths. You can see which way these pillars are facing, and they're clearly facing toward the south. And all of the enclosures are facing that way, oriented that way. And when you look at the time period of Gebekli Tepe, which is determined independently based on radiocarbon, based on stratigraphy, that type of thing, uh, you're talking the time period that straddles the end of the last ice age from about 8,500 B.C. to 10,000 plus B.C. And at that time, Orion towards the Pleiades, and we know that these were very important constellations in ancient times, were rising on the vernal equinox. We're at the um, orientation that Gebekli Tepe, the Gebekli Tepe pillars are looking toward toward the south. So I've hypothesized that this was um, the possible orientation, what they were pointing at. Andrew Collins has said it, no, it's Cygnus, which is to the northwest. Essentially, if you look out and you see Orion, Taurus, Pleiades to the southeast, you turn around and you see Cygnus to the northwest, and he's pointed to what's known as a vulture stone and said, well, that represents Cygnus. Now, I don't deny that that might be the possibility, but I think that's probably a secondary orientation of just one of the enclosures, because it turns out the other enclosures, which are to the south, down slope from the first enclosure, if they were actually oriented towards Cygnus, it would be impossible because you can't see Cygnus uh, to the northwest at that point because the other enclosures are in the way. They were built progressively, if that makes sense. It's hard to, hard to mm -hmm. explain without uh, having the diagram in front of you. Uh, so, I mean, they're being built progressively down slope toward the south. I think it's fairly evident they were oriented primarily toward the south, um, to southeast, not to the north-northwest. And it precludes the possibility of a primary orientation of all of them being Cygnus, um, even though the one enclosure, early enclosure, may have had a secondary orientation to Cygnus. And when it comes right down to it, most uh, ancient structures, they're not built for just one reason or one purpose or one orientation. They're multi-purpose. So I think right. it's a little more complex in some respects. And Andrew Collins says, um, you know, I don't think his cosmic blueprint is the entire, as he calls it, he's called it the cosmic blueprint. His cosmic blueprint is the entire and final word on the significance of Gebekli Tepe far from it. And ultimately, I think that the message of Gebekli Tepe is something I think we talked about last time, which is that... Um, this is a site that goes back to the end of the last ice age, clearly indicates that you have high civilization at the end of the last ice age, uh, thousands and thousands of years before anyone suspected was the case, except for I'll point out myself, I've been talking about all along based on my work in Egypt and the redating of the Sphinx, but the scholarly community, the classical status quo, said this was impossible to have civilization going back that long ago. But here we have evidence of Gebekli Tepe. I want to mention a story I've heard since we last spoke. Um, a Turkish fellow, uh, you know, and Gebekli Tepe is in Turkey. He was making a documentary about Gebekli Tepe and uh, Egyptologist who had never heard about Gebekli Tepe before. Mm -hmm. uh, Egyptologist. And he starts showing her pictures of Gebekli Tepe and saying, well, this has been radiocarbon dated back to 12,000 years ago. You know, look at this. What do you think of that? And she says, no, no, no. That's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. Nothing could be that sophisticated and that old. Wow. And that's, that's been the 
approach. That's been the attitude to just absolutely dismiss it as impossible that you could have civilization going back that far, something that sophisticated going back that early. And I may have mentioned it last time we were uh, discussing this on your program, but if you take it in isolation, so for instance, if that Egyptologist had just been shown those photographs of the structures that come back up and said, well, how old do you think this is? She probably would say, oh, it looks like it's about three or 4,000 years old at most. Mm-hmm. It's that sophisticated, not 12,000 years old. Uh, so so we've got a real disconnect there between the standard view, the sort of the, the standard wisdom, if you would, the standard dogma of when civilization is supposed to have started and the evidence on the ground was something like Quebec Tape. And then this gets back to what we were just talking about, because you have this sophisticated civilization at the end of the last ice age, 12,000 or so years ago, what happens to it? And that's a big part of what I've been working on. And I talked about my book, Forgotten Civil, and I believe we talked about last time that there's this major, major solar outburst, I believe, at the end of the last ice age, causes dramatic climate changes, causes essentially cataclysmic um, disaster on Earth, and that's what wipes out these early civilizations, um, throws them into a tailspin, sets them way back, and then it's only a reemergence of civilization 4,000, 3,000 B.C., not the beginning of civilization at that point. Right. Um, uh, the, the, now, so much of Gobekli Tepe has not been uncovered yet, and so they've only carbon-dated part of it. Is it possible that we're going to find that some of this is even older than what we've discovered so far? Yeah, I think that's actually quite conceivable. Uh, I was actually working on, you know, the research continues, and I've been researching this further uh, since you and I last spoke, which wasn't that long ago. I'll be researching it more, actually, as I travel to Turkey in uh, less than two weeks now. There are indications that uh, there are stone circles. I just found this out. One of the stone circles that's underground at Quebecli Tepe apparently has been measured. I want to look into this more once I'm in Turkey in about a week and a half. One of these stone circles is said to be three times as big as the largest stone circle that has been partially excavated. Hmm. Um, And this was found by seismic means by geophysical means you know things like ground pan ground pan train radar that type of thing and supposedly based on the remote sensing data the seismic and the geophysical data this one of these circles is uh, much larger than the largest one that's been excavated so far and it's all the indications are that the largest pillars in it are much larger than the largest pillars that have been excavated so far and the some of the pillars that have been excavated thus far are over five meters tall, and it's estimated that in this big circle, possibly some of the pillars are 10 meters or more tall. So it's wow. over 30-foot pillars. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah, this is absolutely incredible, and they're completely covered at the moment, and they could. it's quite conceivable that they go back even further than 12,000 B.C. So there could be some real surprises uh, in store for us. Any, any idea when those are going to get excavated? No, that's part of the problem uh, in the sense that apparently the uh, long-term plan for excavation spans some 50 years now. I mean, mm. literally talking about taking 50 years to excavate the uh, entire site. It, it's, it's, really, it's really incredible. 
But if there are 10 meter tall pillars underground at Quebecway Tepe, you know, 10 meters over 30 feet is really significant. That is the size of some of the erect moai on Easter Island. We were going to talk about Easter Island, I think. Mm -hmm. Big heads and torsos on Easter Island, which are so mysterious and enigmatic. And also show I can show iconography, I believe, similar to some of the Quebec uh, Tepe pillars with the position of the arms and the hands. So there's some strange similarities there from you know the middle of the Pacific all the way to Turkey. Wow. All right. Well, actually, let, let's move on to Easter Island for now. Um, and last time we talked about the script and how the uh, the solar outbursts might play a part in what the the Rango Rango script actually says. Right. Uh, but, we, but we never talked about any of the archaeology on the island. And uh, now, one one of the things: do do all the statues have bodies? Yes, as far as anyone knows, all the statues have bodies. They all seem to have bodies that end just below the waist. So they don't have, with a couple of exceptions, they don't have legs. So essentially the statues are heads and torsos with arms down, sort of holding the belly, framing the navel area. And they're all very stylistically similar in that sense, although they're also all unique. If you start looking at these around statues, they fall in certain categories. Uh, and they look very stylized, but each statue is a unique statue unto itself. There are slight differences from statue to statue. Okay, and there, uh, why the navel? The navel seems to be a very important part of uh, ancient cultures. Uh, the, the phrase navel of the world seems to come up a lot. Why do you think that is? Yeah, it, it seems to be multiple, um, have multiple meanings. Some people suggest, well, that's a position of prayer. That's a position of meditation. Other people suggest it really is connection. It's connection of us to the cosmos, of the universe, or the whole concept of uh, birthing, but in a cosmic sense, or connection to the um, really larger cosmos, larger universe. I suspect that, in my in my opinion, it has to do with that type of connection. They are essentially holding the belly navel region. In the case of the Easter Island Moai, I'm convinced that they're looking toward the sky. And hmm. why? Because there's things happening in the sky. And, you know, my um, hypothesis is that one of the major driving factors is solar outbursts that were so influential, so important. One of the native names for Easter Island is eyes looking toward the sky, referring to the Moai looking toward the sky. They also have a legend about uh, things happening in the sky and essentially the sky collapsing and falling down and then going back up again. And I believe this is referring to what you would see in the sky, configurations essentially. People think of northern lights, think of northern lights. Um, but northern lights, orders of magnitude greater than anything we've seen today. You would see that type of thing in the sky during a major solar outburst, even as um, it caused climatic effects, as it caused um, earthquake and volcanic activity to accelerate on the surface of the Earth. If you're talking end of the last ice age, of course, we caused melting glaciers, that type of thing. Right. I think they realize that uh, we are integral to the larger universe, that we are integral to um, nature, you know, part of nature. I think in many modern people have lost that connection until disaster hits, you know, when they're hit by a tornado. It's been horrible. I'm sure everyone's heard about all the tornadoes recently or the hurricanes, the floods. 
I was I saw in the news today they um, had incredible I think in Minnesota northern lights because there was a, a minor coronal mass ejection that hit the earth um, just recently so we see these things to this day but um, it was much greater at certain times in ancient history uh, right. and the status of the sun so I think the um, Moai uh, are are in part memorializing these types of phenomena and also sort of saying, pay attention, you know, this is going to happen again. This can happen again. Now, now, during the last Ice Age, how big could the island have been? And do you think there could be any connection to legends of, like, Mu and Lemuria and stuff? Uh, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good point. First off, it would have been larger. I don't know how much larger we'd have to really look at, um, which I haven't down to do yet. Look at uh, this the coastal area around Easter Island. Clearly, it would have been much larger because for all means sea levels were as much as 100 uh, meters or so lower, over 100 meters in some cases lower at the height of the height of the last ice age because so much water was tied up in glaciers. So really dramatically lower sea levels and you had vast expanses of land around the world above sea level at that time, which are now buried under um, the oceans. And Easter Island would have been no exception. So it would have been much larger. It, uh, it wouldn't have been a huge continent, but it would have been much larger, much more significant. We have all these stories of um, Lumeria or Mu in the Pacific or Indian Ocean, of course, the concept of Atlantis. And my view right now is that all of those really refer back to an ancient civilization or various ancient civilizations at the end of the last ice age. Uh, you know, some people spend a lot of time trying to figure out where was Atlantis, where was Lumeria, where was Mu. I was in, I don't know if we spoke before I went to Japan recently or after Japan. Uh, we spoke, I believe, in the beginning of Mar middle of March, maybe. Okay, so I've actually been to Japan since with you and I last spoke. Oh. oh. And this ties in because I was in Japan once again looking at a site known as Yanaguni. Hmm, I was going to ask you about that later. Oh, okay. Well, I was... But, but go on now. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. Well, it ties in with the whole concept of Mu and Lemuria. Because Yanaguni is a site in Japan. Yanaguni is a little island, which is now part of modern Japan. So it's actually an island off of, um, not off of the coast, but near the uh, coast of Taiwan. It's uh, east of Taiwan, so you can stand on western Yanaguni on a clear day and see Taiwan in the distance to the west. At the end of the last ice age, there was actually a land bridge between Taiwan and Yanaguni. That's how much lower the sea levels were, and people could literally walk from Yanaguni to Taiwan and back at the wow. end of the last ice age. But off the coast of Yanaguni, and this is what has interested so many people, there is this incredible structure, I'll call it the Yanaguni structure, Yanaguni formation, that looks like a step pyramid or looks like the side of a step pyramid. And in my opinion, there's no question that this was exposed. It was above sea level when sea levels were much lower at the end of the last ice age. And some people have suggested that this was in part part of Mu or Lemuria. It was essentially um, part of the um, Mu-Lemuria complex at the uh, end of the last ice age. And we know that there were ancient people living on Yanaguni and Taiwan at that 
period, that remote period, about 15,000 plus years ago. And so maybe this was part of the inspiration, part of the, um, you know, right. stories that uh, were passed down through thousands of generations. And we still have as um, yeah, expressed in terms of Mu slash Lemuria. Now, you have said in the past that you feel the, the monument was actually a natural formation, but it might have been crafted by man, right? Exactly, and I was just, I've been there several times. I was there April once then uh, because uh, British, I can't go into detail, but Bomb Lines British Television um, Film Production Company will ask me to come look at it once again. And I'm convinced that, uh, number one, it's primarily natural, but number two, there are ancient remains of peoples there at the end of the last ice age. And this is a structure that if they didn't actually build it from scratch, which I don't think is the case at all, I think it's primarily a natural structure, certainly they would have recognized it as being an incredible structure, just like we recognize it now. And they may have touched it up, they may have modified it slightly. Think of a mountain that sort of looks like a certain shape, and you modify a little bit to enhance it, that shape, and they utilized it. Now, now, I think Graham Hancock said there were also some stone circles around it as well? Yeah, there's some, well, there's some stone circles near it. Uh, it. It's not clear that they're artificial. And then mm. if you go to Okinawa, there are other stone circles that there's a stronger chance that be artificial. One thing you have to keep in mind here is that when you go to the far east, East, there's a very, very long um, tradition of working nature and enhancing nature, venerating nature for its own sake, that type of thing. Uh, one analogy I use, and it's a good analogy, important analogy, is actually a tradition that goes back thousands and thousands of years, are things of like Zen gardens. Think of a Zen garden where you have natural boulders that have just been slightly rearranged. Mm-hmm. And, and venerated, or I have a Chinese friend, and he was telling me recently about uh, what they call scholar stones, where they take a natural stone, but they mount it on a wooden base, and, you know, hold this a beautiful object. Yes, it's a natural stone. So there, there's this interplay between artificiality and nature, and often the distinctions are very, very blurred when you get to the Far East. Very different than, say, a Western European aesthetic, where it's very clear that Stonehenge, for instance, is an artificial structure. Right. Um, but then even, you know, I'm thinking about some of the sites I saw in English uh, in the last week or two, uh, where you take uh, natural stone blocks, clearly unworked, but they're arranged in stone, stone circles artificially. So a lot of ancient people, you know, there there was... Uh, they used what was there. They used what was there. Now, it's interesting going back to Gebekli Tepe. We were talking about Gebekli Tepe. Gebekli Tepe people did not simply use what was there. When you look at the pillars of Gebekli Tepe, every single pillar is beautifully carved. Incredible craftsmanship. Incredible um, work went into carving every pillar with um, reliefs of animals and symbols and whatnot. So it really varies. It really, it really varies from uh, one period to another, one culture to another. 
you go to Easter Island, we were talking about Easter Island and come back to Easter Island. The Moai are entirely carved, but on Easter Island, you also get petroglyphs. So you get carvings on natural boulders, which are clearly artificial carvings, but they're on the natural boulders, the natural outcrops. Right. All kinds um, of patients. Now, the, the, these moai, are some of them buried? Yeah. Well, no. Yes. Yes and no. Okay. Depends on what you call buried. And well, let me explain. Some okay. of them, a lot of the moai are uh, buried at the moment up, in, up to their shoulders, up to their chins. And I am convinced that this is natural burial. That's not a situation which some people have suggested where, uh, you know, some people have hypothesized for whatever ritual purposes they carved these moais and they dug big holes, big pits, and stuck them in their pits and buried them purposefully, buried them artificially. So not that type of burial, uh, but a lot of them are buried up to their chins or so. But all the indications are is that this was natural sedimentation that slowly buried them, which implies that they're extremely old. Some have been excavated in the past. Uh, Catherine Peace Rutledge, uh, a, a woman, actually led an expedition to Easter Island in the early 1900s, and she and her crew excavated some of these buried moai and found in every case when they excavated them, even the ones that were buried all the way up to their chins, they had full bodies underneath, hmm. but no legs. Uh, Thor Heyerdahl, I'm sure lots of people have heard of the late Thor Heyerdahl, who did things like Kantiki and the Raw, and he was known for his expeditions of reconstructing how ancient peoples could cross the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean. He spent time on Easter Island with his, uh, his research crew in the 1950s. He also excavated some moai. He excavated one moai in particular where it was buried up to its shoulders. He excavated down more than six meters and found that this was a really tall moai and it had been buried in more than six meters of sediment. Again, mm. there was a full torso there. And then just recently, in the last couple of years, several moai have been excavated likewise, and they're finding the same thing. In every case, I'm a geologist, and I've looked at the data, and in every case where you have these excavated moai, all the indications are that the sediment filled in slowly, gradually, cumulatively. It was not a case where they either dug a hole and artificially buried it. That looks very different geologically. It was not a case where there were all of a sudden landslides that catastrophically buried these moai up to their necks. It wasn't a tsunami that washed in and buried them. In fact, if it were a landslide or tsunami, these tall moai, you would expect them to be knocked over and uh, buried, you know, very differently. So all the indications are that these were uh, buried in sediment, the ones that are buried slowly and gradually, which suggests that they're a lot older than traditional archaeologists have proposed. Traditional archaeologists say that the moai, even the oldest moai, only go back maybe a 1, thousand, fifteen hundred years at the most, depending on who you talk to. But given the rate of sedimentation that I've been able to document on Easter Island, 
given what we know geologically, I think these Moai have been very much underestimated in terms of their age. And then there's other reasons to think that Easter Island goes back much earlier. We were talking about the uh, end of the last ice age, and when did, wouldn't Easter Island be much larger? I think that's absolutely the case. Or Heyerdahl documented a lot of what he believed were cultural connections between Easter Island and South America, which goes against the traditional point of view. The traditional point of view is that Easter Island is really Polynesia, the easternmost portion of Polynesia, so that the origins of Easter Islanders, most people are conventional archaeologists and historians, would trace to the west, Polynesia. Kathor Heyerdahl suggested that there was a connection between Easter Island and the east, that is South America. And in fact, uh, one thing he found was a very unusual moai. And so this is the exception to the rule that moai don't have legs. So Heyerdahl excavated in the 1950s uh, a moai, what's called a moai, big statue. You can see it to this day on Easter Island, which looks very different than the other Moai in terms of its facial features, in terms of its body features, and it has legs on it. But the legs, it's not standing on its legs, it's kneeling on its legs. And it hmm. looks for all the world like many of the statues that you find, for instance, in Peru and Bolivia at Tuanaku, um, for instance, these kneeling statues this is what that Moai looks like. And he draw, drew the logical conclusion that there might be cultural relationships between Easter Island and South America. When you look at some of the megalithic stone constructions, on Easter Island you have something known as Ahus. Some of the Moai were erected on these Ahus. These are big megalithic stone platforms which were built and the Moai, some of the Moai were positioned on them. Uh, some of these ahus and their construction techniques look much more South American than Polynesian. So there seems to be a connection there. And he suggested, or Heyerdahl suggested, that the origins of Easter Islanders, or at least some of their origins, may have come from South America. Something I've played with conceptually is that maybe it's not that they're originating in South America or in Polynesia, but maybe it's the other way around. Maybe Easter Island itself was primary. And then there were a diffusion, a spreading from Easter Island, both east and west, to South America on the one hand and to Polynesia on the other hand. And that gets back to something you mentioned, the concept of Mu or Lemuria as sort of a primordial civilization, if you would, in the Pacific and spreading out from there. So I wouldn't be surprised. We don't know for certain at this point, but I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Easter Island culture isn't much, much older. I think it is much, much older than classical archaeologists give it credit for. And maybe it's much more central. Maybe it really influenced both Polynesia and South America. Now, now you also said that there, these uh, Moai are made of two different types of stone, correct? Very, very good point, and um, that, that's, a, that's a really important point. Most of the Moai, the classic Moai, are made out of volcanic tufts, it's known as. It's, it's all volcanic on Easter Island. All the stone is essentially volcanic. It's a volcanic 
island. But most of the moai, the big moai that can be 30 or more feet tall, they are primarily carved out volcanic tops. And you can go to the quarry. I'd love to go uh, back to East Dry, and I don't have any immediate plans, but um, I'm actually trying to work on putting together Easter, Easter Island trip again to take uh, people there and get back myself. I've been there a couple of times. But when you go there, you can see the quarries where the majority of Moai were carved. It's very clear, and you can still see some Moai in the quarry. There's one Moai that's over 60 feet tall. Hasn't, um, uh, it wasn't left unfinished, basically, but it's a humongous thing. And if it had been finished and freed and moved, we're talking about Moai that would have weighed over 250 tons. So I mean, they, they had incredible plans. And, they ruined what they were doing. But most of them are made out of this volcanic tufts, which admittedly is not easy to work, but it's easier to work than basalt. The other class of moai, which are much rarer and tend to be much smaller, are actually carved out of basalt. Basalt is also a type of igneous rock, but it's much harder, it's much finer, it's much more difficult to work with. And these basalt moai, there's two things about them. One, they're much rare. The ones that have been found, there's one in the British Museum. It was um, abducted from Easter Island in the 19th century and ended up in the British Museum. It's prominently on display. It's carved out of basalt. These basalt moai, in every case, were found within or under other Easter Island ruins. So that means that they're much earlier than the other Easter Island moai. They're much earlier than the Ahus um, because they were found under them. So there's one that you can still see in the museum on Easter Island. It's known as a female moai. It was found in two different parts and since been put back together. The head was found in the body. It's relatively small but very beautiful and carved out basalt. It was found at one of the um, ahus deep underneath the ahu, so deep underneath the other um, moai. Another basalt moai was found actually reused and built into one of the ahus. So again, we know it's much older. So all the indications are for every single basalt moai that's been found is that they are older than the other moai. The second thing about the basalt is that we don't know where it was quarried. It must have been somewhere on the island, but there are no good basalt quarries known where one can argue cogently this is where the basalt came from to quarry these moais. And my suggestion is that, well, those quarries might have existed on a former Easter Island, but this would have been an Easter Island going back to the end of the last ice age that we talked about, because you expect stratigraphically that the basalt quarries would be lower down. And as sea levels rose since the end of the last ice age, my speculation is that the basalt quarries were flooded, that they're now underwater, that they are off the coast of the present Easter Island. So if we could find those basalt quarries under current sea level, that would clearly indicate that they are much older, that they date back to the end of the last ice age, and it would, um, in a flash, be absolutely convincing evidence, I believe, that Easter Island culture goes back thousands of years earlier than um, classical archaeologists uh, right now accept. 
And, okay. and it gets more interesting even because the like Jacques Cousteau, the famous French uh, diver who did so much you know, to make people aware of the under, underwater world, he and his team at one point were on Easter Island diving off the coast of Easter Island, and they saw what they described as very rectangular sort of openings or... Um, cavities or, you know, depressions, should we say, in basalt rocks off the coast of East Island. And I think that they may have actually seen ancient quarries. You know, they didn't necessarily recognize them as such, because that's not what they were looking for. But from the descriptions I've received of what they supposedly saw, they may have hit upon them. Hmm. It's a lot of tantalizing evidence that uh, you know, Easter Island culture goes way back. And also, I, I don't know if I said explicitly enough, these basalt moai are the most sophisticated moai. They are the best carved moai, uh, the most beautiful moai. The finest workmanship is found on the basalt moai, even though it's a much more difficult rock to work. Well, like like everywhere in ancient cultures, it seems like the oldest stuff is the best constructed. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's why I was um, mentioning the Beckley Tepe. The Beckley Tepe is... The, the workmanship at Quebecle Tepe 12,000 years ago is much better than a lot of uh, later later constructions about later workmanship. How, how do you how do you think they moved the heads on on Easter Island? Oh, that that's a good question. People people argue about that. If you look at the conventional points of view, uh, they'll tell you all kinds of stories about how they depopulated the uh, island of trees. The, right now, it has very little wood, very few trees. There's indications that there were palm trees and whatnot, and much greater abundance on the island. Previously, in the classical story, is that they were carving these big heads and torsos as busy work, you know, because it's a small island and they had to have something to do. To keep the populace from, you know, causing trouble for the chiefs, and so the classical story is along the lines that they carved these big moai that they used uh, tree trunks as rollers to roll them around on the island and move them. I don't buy any of this, but I'm just giving the classical archaeological point of view. And in the process, they cut down all their trees and caused horrible environmental havoc on the island. I don't think any of that holds up. It's not an island where you could easily be rolling trees around and rolling moai around on uh, uh you know, logs from trees. There are ancient roads that crisscross the island, but recent studies, and I say recent, just in the last couple of years, indicates that these roads were not substantial enough to be moving moai along. They're probably more for uh, people walking along them, processional roads, that type of thing, not for actually moving uh, moai that weigh tens of tons. Another, another view is that um, the moai were sort of propped up on not stilts, but serving a scaffold framing. So they were actually moved while they were standing vertically and they were, quote, walked, but they were sort of pivoted back and forth and moved along that way. Um, I don't find that necessarily really convincing either. When you talk to the ancient, when I say ancient, the traditional uh, Easter Islanders, and ask them about their traditions and what, how the Moai move. They always talk in terms of supernatural powers. Um, they use the term mana, 
which is essentially a way of saying paranormal, that they remove paranormally or psychokinetically. And, and uh, you know, of course, modern archaeologists and historians, they just dismiss that as being absolute nonsense. They all talk about the Moai being carved with very primitive tools. They'll show you these primitive obsidian tools and that type of thing, which, you know, it's just not very convincing, honestly, to me, that this is how they either carved them or moved them by the conventional explanations. So I think it's a real mystery. I, I hate to say, I speculate myself that um, maybe they did use to certain extent what we would term paranormal means to... Um, move the Moai. Because you do have a situation on Easter Island. It was isolated for thousands of years, clearly, even as an origin of some civilization very early on. It does seem to have become isolated and was a world unto itself until 1722 when it was rediscovered by Europeans, by the Dutch explorers in particular. And up until that point, it was a really closed, isolated society, and they may have been able to accomplish things with means that, uh, you know, we really don't understand. Uh, one one suggestion, I know you talk about paranormal topics on your show sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And one, one thing that you find with certain types of paranormal phenomena, and I've studied this seriously, so I'm seriously interested in looking at these phenomena once you get rid of all the fraud and the bunk and the nonsense, what you find is with certain types of paranormal phenomena, uh, collective belief, true belief is incredibly important. And if you have, I have, I've speculated that if you have a small closed society like you had on Easter Island, you could have a much more homogenous belief system, which would affect, in a real sense, um, paranormal phenomena that um, in the so-called modern day with all the cynics around, really is not possible to the same extent, if that makes sense. Right, right, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so, you know, in some ways, I think that Easter Island, if we could get back to the classic or traditional Easter Island, there's a lot to learn from it because they may have had literally a sort of a different worldview and this may have had a uh, uh, very different um, real-world effects, should we say. Hmm. All right. I, you got married there, too, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Katie and I um, were married on Easter Island. We were the first marriage in 2010. Nice. First marriage on Easter Island in 2010. We were actually married twice uh, because we had... Uh, it's Chilean territory, part of Chile. And we had a civil ceremony, you know, official civil ceremony, so legal marriage. And then we also had a traditional Easter Island marriage. Easter Island is known as Rapa Nui in the native language. So we had a Rapa Nui marriage. We um, wore traditional uh, Easter Island feathered headdresses and um, clothing. I was lent a bark cloth cape, traditional bark cloth cape. From East Round, which I realized in hindsight is a real museum piece. It had been passed down through five generations, and wow. it really honored me letting me wear that for a couple of hours. Uh, you know, it must probably, I'm sure it must be well over 100 years old. Um, yeah. well, such, such a perfect place to get married. Yeah, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. I would recommend it to anyone who wants to get married. <laughs> 
Well, in particular for you too, based on what you know, what, where your life has gone with this stuff. Oh yeah, exactly. It really was. It really was the perfect place for us uh, to get married, and it was one of these things. Um, personal mystery of Easter Island, and uh, we got married the way we wanted to. Yeah, uh, we were traditional. The traditional marriage was really nice because we wore traditional clothing that we were lent. As I said, we were barefooted. They painted us with. Um, in the traditional way, way with the um, essentially mud and um, minerals of the earth, and we were standing barefoot upon the earth. And uh, the Rongo Rongo, we were painted with some of the Rongo Rongo um, hieroglyphs for the wedding ceremony. It was, it was quite something. And uh, your book came out in uh, at the end of last year, correct? That's correct. And um, yes. I hope everyone will read it, and I'm not saying that, I, I want to be clear, this is absolutely true, I'm not saying that because I'm trying to sell books, I'm trying to sell information, if you would, or make information available, because as you know, you've read the book, I believe there's a lot of valuable information in the book, which pertains to us to this day, in the real time, real world today. It's not just ancient civilization, sort of in a voyeuristic sense of, oh, aren't they neat to study? Aren't they neat to learn about? I think there's a real message for us today, especially as we watch the news and the sun is ramping up and we could experience, I think we are starting to experience, uh, should we say, um, you know, natural events that ancient civilizations already uh went through in the past. Well, and, and I think that's something people don't always understand. They, they do look at it voyeuristically. Oh, look what these people did. That's really neat. That's really interesting. But they don't realize how relevant it is to us today because these cultures may have known more than we did. They may have actually been more advanced, but in different ways. And something happened to them. And if it happened to them, it very well will likely happen to us or something similar could happen to us. Exactly. It's um, I'm a geologist and it's a virtual truism in geology that when you find something happened in the past, it's going to happen again. You know, you, you see big earthquakes involved activity and asteroids hitting or major solar outbursts. You know, as a geologist, it's not a matter of will that ever happen again, it's just a matter of when will it happen again. Yeah, let's, let's jump over to Egypt real quick. Uh, we never really talked much about Egypt. We talked about the reaction you got from Egyptologists and stuff, but you, you got into this by uh, dating the Sphinx at a much older time, which we referenced briefly earlier. Um, what about the pyramids? Do you think the pyramids may are, are accurately dated? Uh, you know, that's a that uh, it's a subtle question. The answer is probably no. Currently, um, okay. the pyramids that we see today on the Giza plan. There's a lot of pyramids in Egypt. People should realize that uh, there are literally dozens of pyramids in Egypt. So they all have different dates. But I think when you say the pyramids, or at least most people, when they say the pyramids, they're talking about the three pyramids, the three most famous pyramids on the Giza Plateau. Mm -hmm. Those pyramids have, are dated to about, you know, 2550 to 2450 or somewhere in that range, BC. So, you know, 4,500 years ago in rough terms. And this ties in with the Sphinx. My work on the Sphinx, the traditional date for the Sphinx is about 2500 BC, 4500 years ago. And I started my career, if you want to call it that, in ancient civilizations by going to Egypt in 1990 and first looking at 
the Sphinx from a geological perspective. And just to reiterate a little bit or to review for people that might not be that familiar with the story, I determined that the core body of the Sphinx, the oldest portions of the Sphinx, go back thousands of years earlier. Initially, I thought it was about five to 7,000 B.C., I would now revise that even earlier. Um, I have no problem at this point suggesting suggesting that the core body, the oldest portion of the Sphinx, actually goes back to Gebekli Tepe times that goes back to the end of the last ice age. So when you look at the Sphinx, it has to do with weathering features and tying that in with climatic changes because you see weathering on the body of the Sphinx that was clearly caused by precipitation, clearly caused by torrential rains. And you have those at the end of the last ice age. It's very different than the weathering caused by hyper-arid conditions, basically desert conditions of the Sahara, which is what you have over the last 5,000 years. So I'm getting to the pyramids. So when you look at the core body of the Sphinx, it goes back much earlier. And in fact, I would say that you know that's sort of become established now. There's really no denying it. And the Sphinx itself is sort of a hybrid because the head of the Sphinx is a much later head. Probably it was a lion originally. That's my suggestion. The body was heavily weathered. The head would have been heavily weathered. And in dynastic times, the head of the Sphinx was recarved to look the way it does now. It's clearly, in my assessment, a recarved head and a dynastic head. So... In the Sphinx, you have something that's much older, but it was reused in dynastic times, and the head was recarved. So you sort of have a hybrid. When you look at the pyramids, I suspect that you have essentially the same type of scenario where you have much older structures that were reused, refurbished, rebuilt in dynastic times. My um, colleague and friend Robert Bouval has worked a lot on the pyramids, and I'm sure people are, many people are familiar with what's known as the Ryan correlation, that the three pyramids on the Giza Plateau, in fact, represent the three belt stars of Orion, the constellation Orion in the sky. And Orion itself is representative in ancient Egyptian mythology of Osiris, the god Osiris. And Robert Duvall established that correlation, which I think has really stood the test of time. And something about his Orion correlation is that, yes, it looks like the belt stars of Orion, but in fact, when does it match the night skies the best? Not in the present day, not in 2500 BC, but about 10,500 BC. So this, again, suggests that things are going on much earlier on the Giza Plateau and in this case, focused on the pyramids. Now, Bouval himself, Robert Bouval himself, would not necessarily say, and I've talked to him about this many times, that the present pyramids are 10,500 BC, but that they mark positions on the plateau uh, from that earlier period. When I look at the current pyramids, I think that um, in the case of the Great Pyramid, you have what's known as a subterranean chamber. It's deep in the bedrock under the current pyramid. I think that goes back much earlier um, as a physical structure. What you have with the Great Pyramid was initially a sacred mound. There's to this day a mound under the Great Pyramid. It's a rock mound and the subterranean chamber that goes deep beneath it. So I think that's the primary structure, or the earliest structure. Later, it was built up, in my assessment, as essentially a platform 
platform up to what's now the current 50th level of the Great Pyramid, including the Grand Gallery and the Queen's Chamber. And then later it was added to once again uh, in the final touches, if you would, or the final version of it was probably completed in um, Old Kingdom dynastic time. So you have a structure that was used and reused and built upon and modified. The same with the second pyramid. It has a ring of granite around the base, and granite was used typically in dynastic times to indicate that they were refurbishing or re- re- um, restoring uh, more ancient structures. So this is a ring of old kingdom granite around the base, which I think clearly indicates they are trying to clearly indicate that this is an older structure that they're refurbishing, that they're restoring to a certain extent. And you see exactly the same thing on what's known as the Sphinx Temple and the Valley Temple, where you have granite covering over much older limestone structures. And in this these cases, again, even the Egyptologists, the classical Egyptologists, agree that the granite is 4th Dynasty, Old Kingdom, circa 2500 BC, and um, it's covering over, it's restoring something that's much older. Um, they don't want to admit that the thing is, that's being restored is thousands of years older, but geologically it's very clear. And when you look at the third pyramid, uh, people who have been there, they'll recognize that the third pyramid has a very heavy coating of the same red Aswan granite on it. And I think this, again, is an indication that they are restoring in dynastic times much older structure. So the answer to your question, are the pyramids older? I think the cores of them, the original pyramids are much older, but they were being reused and restored in classical Old Kingdom dynastic times, which is 4,500 years ago unto itself. I know when I talked to Stephen Mailer, he had said that the the oral tradition of Egypt says that the pyramids date back 12,000 years as well. Yeah, yeah. There are all these oral traditions and ancient traditions that it goes back to that earlier period. In fact, this is uh, sometimes referred to as Zeptepe. Not to to be confused with Gebekli Tepe in Turkey, but in Egypt, you have the concept of Zeptepe. Pepe, which is the original times, the origin times, the earliest times of civilization, and civilization was supposed to have flourished back then, sort of went through a fall and then reemerged later. And the ancient Egyptians themselves, so the ancient Egyptians four to five thousand years ago, talked about this earlier period, which I would place at the end of the last ice age, twelve thousand years ago. And they refer to it as Zeptepi, the um, time when gods were among the humans, when civilization had its first flowering. And they talk about this as being a period, almost like a biblical, you know, fall from grace. And then there was a demise and then they had to rediscover civilization. So, yeah, these ancient traditions uh, talk about what I think we are now learning uh, based on geology and archaeology. Okay. Um, I did have a, a question from a listener. Jack in Vegas uh, asks, at one time the Nile River ran right along the Giza Plateau. The ancients could have sailed right down to the pyramids, and he'd like to know how long it would have taken in geologic time to move the Nile to its present location, and would this be a good indicator of the age of the monuments? Uh, he's absolutely right that the Nile came much closer at one point 
to the Giza Plateau than it does now. But it's not, in my opinion, as a geologist, a good indicator of the um, age of them. The Nile, like any major river, when left to its own devices, can migrate back and forth relatively quickly. So you could, you know, the Nile was probably much closer 12,000 years ago, but it could have been closer in intermediate periods also. Um, And there are indications that it was. Uh, so, you know, they tend to, people don't realize how quickly, geologically, rivers can migrate. We're talking in terms of uh, centuries to millennia. Nowadays, people don't want rivers to migrate, so they put all kinds of banks around them, they put levees around them, they enclose them. And this is a major problem when you look at rivers around the world, including the Nile. So in modern times, they've done a lot to keep the Nile in uh, one course. You know, build, building levees on either side. They built the Aswan high and low dams to try and control the Nile. People do the same thing with the Mississippi. So from a geological perspective, um, you know, we, we tamper with rivers the way they shouldn't be tampered with. But I do want to make a point because he brings up a very good point. I think that in very ancient times, when I say very ancient times, just think in terms of 10, 12,000 years ago, the Nile was much closer to the Giza Plateau, and one thing that I found seismically, and I don't know if I talked about this on the show last time or not, but something that a fellow named Thomas DeBecchi, a geophysicist uh, who I worked with back in the early 90s, we were looking at underground structures, or I basically wanted um mineralogical data and weathering data around the Sphinx to either confirm or refute my redating of the Sphinx since it confirmed it. But something that we found was that there's a chamber under the left paw of the Sphinx, and some people have suggested that this is the Hall of Records, in case they predicted there would be something around there. And there's no good entrance to it, no known entrance to it. But something else we found was that when you go just due east of the Great Sphinx and the Sphinx Temple, what's known as the Sphinx Temple, right in front of it, under what is currently sand, there's actually a major cliff. And I believe that back at this very remote period, the Nile came very close to that cliff. And you would have actually been on the Nile. You could have been on a boat on the Nile, sailing along the Nile. The Nile goes from north to south, so you'd be sailing south. If you're following the Nile, you would look up to the left, and you would see this cliff, you would see the Sphinx, and you would see um, the Sphinx Temple up on the cliff, and we're in a very dramatic site. And I've also speculated that in the site of that cliff, there may have been an entrance leading into a tunnel system that would go into the chamber that's now under the paws of the Sphinx. So it was probably a very different situation uh, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago, and that included a different position for the Nile. Okay. All right. Well, let's let's move on to uh, some of the work you've done with uh, parapsychology and some of the the, the sort of break, cutting edge science you have in the new book. Um, and there was, there was you, you squeezed a lot of of cutting edge research into this book in just like the last chapter. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, and I I think one of the important my important points or one of the important points I'd like to make is, and you mentioned this earlier, these ancient civilizations, particularly these very, very ancient civilizations going back to the end of the last ice age, they may have been more advanced than us in some respects. And that respect in particular might be what we now call parapsychology or paranormal phenomena. 
uh, things in terms of consciousness, what they could do with their minds, how they could use their minds to access information or to even affect real-world phenomena. Um, very different, very different mentality, very different worldview than we have today. And I think, you know, sort of cutting-edge research in certain fields is maybe just starting to approach what they knew and even took for granted. Now, I, I know you've been on the uh, CPAC conference that Walter Cruttenden puts on. Confession and ancient knowledge. Very good conference that he puts on almost every year. He's not doing it in 2013, but I understand from him inside knowledge he's going to do it in 2014. Yeah, he said he said he was. Yeah, okay, good. So he's made that public. Um, but now, what do you think about his theories with the cycles of time? That that we we move into a more spiritual level of consciousness and then back into a dark age over over the course of uh, twenty four thousand years. Well, it's not just his theory. I mean, he he would um, be the first, I think, to say that uh, this is actually a tradition that goes back to the ancients themselves. Cor cor yeah, he's corrected me on that numerous times. Yeah. Yeah, but he's certainly been a modern proponent of it. And it's interesting that when you look at ancient cultures around the world, you have these types of traditions. So in the Hindu-Indian tradition, you have the concept of the Yuga cycles. And he in particular has emphasized the Yuga cycle and the concept of going you know, through the different cycles, the different spiritual ages. And uh, he has tied, and he wasn't the first one to do it, but um, he and other people have tied this to the processional ages. And I'm sure everyone knows what the processional ages are, but, you know, the ages based on the zodiacal signs. So we're currently at the end of the age of Pisces, and we're going to go into the age of Aquarius. Before the age of Pisces, we had the age of Aries, et cetera, et cetera. So you go through these processional ages, and uh, those that uh, subscribe to this generally suggest that every age has its own sort of psychic aspects, its own consciousness, its own characteristics that affect the world as a whole. And when you talk about the yoga cycles, it's the same type of thing. And even the classical uh, Egyptians, Greeks, Romans, they talked about cycles like this. One of the most common ways to discuss it is in terms of a gold age, silver age, bronze age, iron age, and that you go through these different ages. And uh, something like the gold age, there may be a different mentality, maybe more emphasis on consciousness and higher levels of consciousness versus the iron age being more physical and material. The and, and talked about having cycles or different, what they call suns and going through world ages. So this is a very, very concept, very, very ancient, and I would say universal concept that we go through cycles, we go through different periods. And when you see something like that across cultures around the world, I think you have to take it seriously and say, well, maybe there's some commonality here and maybe it's expressing something real. And my own research indicates that that is absolutely the case, that there is something to it. Now, the, uh, the golden age would be the time period of places like Gobekli Tepe and uh the first time of the Egyptian culture, wouldn't it? That's absolutely correct. When you when you uh, correlate this with the Yuga cycle in particular, as Walter Crutchenden has and others have been speaking about it, and I've done seminars on this um, uh, at conferences, you know, focused on the Yuga cycle, it turns out that Quebec Tepe, Zepp 
copy of the Egyptians at golden time, that first period of civilization ties in with the Satya Yuga or the um, golden age of the Yuga cycle. And at that time, the, according to Hindu beliefs, as I understand them, they saw it as a golden age, but as a golden age that was less material and more spiritual, if you would, or different levels of consciousness. Uh, some of them even talk explicitly about during the golden age, there would have been more, we'll call it mind control, or more ability to control one's mind and affect real world changes with the mind. Um, more ability to do things that, yeah, in the modern age, people would uh, refer to as paranormal or parapsychological, telepathy, that type of thing, telepathic connections, and that these were much more common at that um, at that time in that type of age. Now, you've done some work with uh, parapsychology and psi in particular, and have found a connection to the sun. Yes, absolutely. There is absolutely a connection to the sun, and uh, you, depending on where the sun is, or the, really the connection and adjustment is more to the geomagnetic flux, but the geomagnetic flux on Earth is directly related to um, solar activity. So, so there is this solar, there is this solar connection. And there's a, we don't understand it fully, but um, uh, depending on the activity of the sun, the level of activity, it uh, affects the uh, magnetic field on Earth, the geomagnetic field. And there's a direct correlation between geomagnetic fluctuations and um, things like telepathic um, phenomena or um, what sometimes people call remote viewing types of phenomena or poltergeist types of phenomena. These are all uh, correlated. And there have been studies, interestingly, uh, looking at um, correlations between these types of phenomena and the geomagnetic flux. And interestingly, the geomagnetic flux or the geomagnetic changes have been tallied and kept track of since the late 19th century. And people have recorded when they're had and they've experienced certain types of phenomena, and there's a direct correlation between one and the other, which is really outstanding in the sense that the only way to explain it, if you're a skeptic, is to say that you know everyone decided to have a big conspiracy and they would all report um, telepathic experiences when the uh, when the um, geomagnetic parameters were such and such and not at other times. <laughs> Most people are aware of geomagnetic parameters. Right, and, and what I found odd, I would almost think that psychic ability would be increased when solar radiation and geomagnetic fields were lower, but it's it's the opposite, isn't it? Yeah, it seems to be the opposite. And again, we, we don't understand exactly, we don't exactly understand, um, you know, what the causative factors are. You know, because one thing I, I will say this, it's a classic thing, correlation is not causation. Is there some other factor that's driving both or affecting both? Mm. That's not impossible. Uh, there, there certainly are correlations. And we found, and I talked about this in Forgotten Civilization too, it's not just things like consciousness studies or paranormal phenomena, but it's now been found that uh, certain radioactive isotopes, radioactivity is supposed to be independent, an independent phenomena is not supposed to be affected by anything, but now it's been found at least some radioactivity is affected um, by solar positions where we are in our orbit around uh, the sun, it's affected by things like solar flares, 
So life is a lot more complicated. And a lot more interconnected from, from this type of research. Yeah, than a lot of people want to admit or a lot than is expressed by the classical point of view of physics and chemistry and biology and psychology. Now what... Uh like so if radiocarbon dates and stuff can be altered by where we are in space and by all these in interconnections could they turn out at some point to be way off uh well the simple answer is yes this is not inconceivable uh and actually as a geologist i will make the comment here it's not clear how much they would be off or how much it would affect things. Uh, but yeah, the, there's the distinct possibility that our calibrations in terms of years would be off. Now, what is robust, what will hold up is something that in my own work, I tend to emphasize, even though everyone likes to talk about dates and, you know, 9,700 BC for the end of last ice age, that type of thing. As a geologist, what's most important to me is relative chronology. What came first, second, third, fourth, and fifth? And mm -hmm. that, in my opinion, is much more stable, much more robust. So even if we end up recalibrating some of these dates, and it turns out instead of being 9,700 BC, it's actually you know 10,700. I'm just making up numbers or 8,700, what, what is important to me is the relative chronology, what came first, second, third, fourth, fifth, etc. And that can be established on a lot of bases and is established typically geologically on things other than simply um, radioactive dating or isotopic dating. It's based on stratigraphy of where you find rock formations, what you find under something else correlations like that. So that's actually much more robust and solid and I think will absolutely stand the test of time even if we have to refine isotopic dating because of fluctuations in radioactive decay rates. And uh, you, one of the other things you talk about in there is a really fascinating experiment that has to do with DNA and water. Oh, yes. And that, that was just kind of mind-boggling. Yeah, because it turns out, and this is the basis of a lot of people, which a lot of people would say, you know, this in a way confirms homeopathy, that type of thing. But it turns out that water is incredibly complex. It can hold nanostructures, structures, it responds to uh, electromagnetic and energy fields. And what's been found is that um, you can, water can essentially, in the case of the DNA, can encode the information to uh, resequence or reconstruct DNA, even though it's not supposed to be able to do this. And it can, uh, one body of water can essentially pass this information on to another body of water, essentially we call it telepathically. What's really happening is that it encodes information and it can give it off under the right, the right parameters. Um, essentially it's energy or frequency, which can then be passed on to another, um, you know, isolated body of water and uh, apparently form nanostructures in the water that then if you introduce the right chemicals, it can resequence them to reconstruct, for instance, DNA or virtually anything else. So essentially the concept of water memory and passing on information and, uh, you know, this, in some ways, I think, confirms traditional traditional homeopathy and also confirms the traditional concept of water being so important 
and not all water is the same. So it may be pure H2O in every case, but that doesn't mean it's not encoding information. In fact, all the information now suggests that water can encode information in these um, very complex nanostructures, microstructures within water, even though it's still just pure hydrogen and oxygen. Well, I know, if I'm remembering right, there was a, a someone in Japan who had done yeah. tests on water when they, they were trying to impress emotions on them and showed that they actually related differently depending on what kind of emotions were. Exactly. Um, uh, uh, what's his name? Emoto, I think. Um, and, but the, the concept is that you can pray over water or you can curse water, that type of thing, and it will take on different microstructures, different nanostructures, and uh, go into either chaotic state or a beautiful ordered state, that type of thing. And then if, um, say, a bean, an uh, organism, whether it's human or something else, ingests that water, that water has different effects. Um, and, and what does that say about our consciousness and our emotions? I mean, because if we can project something onto something like that, it... it it argues against us being kind of stuck inside of a body. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, actually, I think one of the big lessons of parapsychology and serious studies of the paranormal is exactly what you're saying. We're not stuck inside our body. In fact, one of the myths, and I'll, I'll use that term, uh, falsehoods, if you would, of modern ways of thinking is that whatever you think in your head stays in your head. It's not the case at all. Whatever you think, whatever you're conscious of, whatever you sort of wish or desire, um, and I don't mean that in a selfish way, but in many cases, it's strong emotions, for instance. If you are carrying strong negative emotions, those do not stay in your head. They uh, affect materially entities, beings, things, material objects around you. Uh, it, it, it's absolutely a falsehood that um, thinking evil thoughts has no no effect on the world at large if you don't act on them. I could put it that way. You know? yeah. There's a good reason that a lot of the ancient traditions, whether it's Judeo-Christian or others, uh, they um, you're not supposed to not only act evil, you know, in evil ways, but you're not supposed to think evil thoughts. Mm -hmm. The point is that they, they actually have a real effect. Now, one of the things you talk about in the book, too, are, are the elf waves that are created by the Earth and how that might also affect our consciousness. And do you think some of these structures were meant to take advantage of that, some of these ancient sites? Yeah, yeah. Actually, um, uh, the, the uh, very long wavelength, um, low frequency, so extremely long wavelength, uh, extremely low frequency, the elf waves, these are sometimes called ELF or extremely long extremely low frequency waves and I think these are absolutely vital to humans human functioning human consciousness we know that based on you know modern um, encephalograms that type of thing our deepest levels of consciousness are at these very low frequency long wavelengths and that ties right in with what are known as human resonances, which is sort of the natural resonance of the Earth on the order of 7 or 8 beats per second hertz. 7 or 8 hertz, and then resonances of that at you know, about 14, 15, etc. And when we're functioning properly, that's where our brain is in terms of wavelengths, and it seems to tie right in when we're sleeping, we're getting good night's sleep, your uh, brain is in those resonances, 
And it seems very clear to me that many of the ancient monuments may have been built to enhance this. There have now been studies demonstrating that. Um, and I'm talking electromagnetic waves, but sound waves also have mm-hmm. the same effect. And in fact, a lot of people don't realize this, but sound and electromagnetic waves are very intimately related when it comes to humans and human consciousness. So you can actually have sound waves that convert to electromagnetic waves and vice versa at these uh, very low frequencies. And something else I want to mention, talk about solar um, activity, the um, basic Schumann resonances, these basic resonances are actually physically a function of electromagnetic waves, essentially light, but not in the visible range. Traveling the, around the Earth, how long it takes for a wave to travel around the Earth, in the cavity between the surface of the Earth and the ionosphere. And that changes as solar activity fluctuates. So it actually affects human resonances and therefore ties back and affects consciousness and probably affects some of the paranormal abilities that we talked about hmm. previously. So all these things are interrelated in some ways going into caves and protect you or going into um, stone structures and what we have around the world, lots of ancient megalithic stone structures. These can sort of protect you or I'll say filter out extraneous waves and get you down to these basic low-level elf waves, these basic level frequencies, these human resonances. And then this can be used, I believe, uh, to enhance consciousness, to gain what people talk about as higher states of consciousness. Um, when people go into deep meditation, this is what they're attempting to do. And I'll say on the negative side, with modern civilization, we bombard ourselves with all kinds of um, electromagnetic frequencies that are frankly unnatural. And I think um, are agitating us from a mental consciousness point of view and um, get in the way of um, deep thinking in terms of um, get in the way in terms of um, should we say higher levels of consciousness there's some right. suggestions that uh, telepathic tele- telepathy may be a multifunctional thing there may be different forms of telepathy but one thing I've speculated I'm not the only one to do this is that certain forms of telepathy may in fact be dependent on these elf waves these um, extremely low frequency waves they may essentially be what I call the telepathic carrier in some cases, and they are disruptive uh, when you have higher frequency waves and you're bombarded by higher frequency waves, which unfortunately in modern society we're bombarded by this all the time. The very fact that both you and I are in some kind of enclosure with currents running through the walls and electricity and all that type of stuff. That's um, America typically at about 60 hertz, frequency of 60 hertz. That's disrupting these um, more fundamental waves and affecting us. People using cell phones, I mean, there's nothing worse. (laughs) Um, um, So I don't want to go off on tangents, but we, again, we we have a very different um, society than some of these ancient societies. And part of it is um, just what we subject ourselves to. With modern technology. Now, I know they, they at one point were talking about, like, if we sent people to Mars, that there there seems to be some physical reliance on 
the, the wave structure of the Earth that might actually make it very difficult for somebody to go to. Yes, yes, exactly. This ties in with it because we on the surface of the Earth, we are tuned. I'll use the term human resonance because that's the technical term for it. We are tuned to these human resonances. We're probably dependent upon them for our brains and our consciousness. And there's, those are two different things. But for both of them to function properly, and if you go for extended periods of time without being subjected, without, you know, sort of starved of Schumann resonances, uh, this, these fundamental electromagnetic uh, waves, we frankly don't know what the implications would be. It's sort of, this is a crude analogy, but the electromagnetism, like the type of electromagnetism, if you were all of a sudden deprived of light um, for long periods of time, and it has nothing to do with whether you can see or not, but you need light even if you're a blind person for certain metabolic functions. We were deprived of human resonances for periods of time that could be uh, very severe, I think, indeed. And so it's been suggested, I've heard of suggestions where if you have long-term space travel to Mars or interplanetary space, that type of thing that maybe you would need to produce or people would try to produce artificial human resonances as a background electromagnetic um, phenomenon for uh, people to live in. And uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of John Keel at all. Uh, but what's, Tell me his work. I may be, but just am not recognizing the name now. Uh, the Mothman Prophecies is probably as well-known. Oh, yeah, okay. And one of the things he talks about, I mean, he actually had a whole book on different frequencies and stuff called The Eighth Hour, but in The Mothman Prophecies, he talks about a point where he was down in the TNT area, and he got stopped at a point where he couldn't walk past it and his theory was that it was generating elf waves in such a way that it was causing irrational fear in him yes 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 i actually i i'm i'm not familiar with his work on that in particular his what you were just expressing but to me that makes perfect sense uh, and so so it may have a paranormal connection to the earth as well yeah yeah so. i think that could well be the case all right let's uh there was a whole bunch there's so much stuff in your book Seriously, you're, you packed so much into here. Um, even if it's small snippets, you, you managed to pack a lot of information into those small bits. Uh, like one of the things you talked about is the quantum entanglement of diamonds and how that affects, uh, you know, that's something that's only supposed to happen on a microscopic scale. And here we've done it on a macroscopic scale. Exactly, which is actually very exciting. It's a major breakthrough when you can get macroscopic diamonds to um, entangle a quantum, quantum level. Uh, this was something, you know, I remember studying quantum physics and whatnot, and this was not supposed to happen. People, and I want to make the general point here, that even though quantum entanglement, quantum phenomena have been acknowledged by um, mainstream science, I mean, it's cutting-edge physics, there was always still this dichotomy, which I felt in some ways just made people feel good, that um, there was this belief that, okay, these quantum effects only happen at the sub-sub-microscopic level. They're not going to have macroscopic effects. So even though you could, quote, believe in quantum mechanics, it didn't need to affect your everyday worldview because it was only a phenomenon that would manifest at the quantum level. It wouldn't manifest at the macroscopic level. And now things with, like, entangled diamonds, we're realizing this is not the case whatsoever, that uh, quantum effects can manifest at the macroscopic level, which to me just seems quite logical that... Um, 
for a long time was denied, I think, as a way of people saving their everyday worldview, their everyday code. All right. Um, one of our listeners has a question I'm not sure that you'll be able to answer, but I'm going to ask you anyway. It's, he says, uh, Eric wants to know, is there any validity that 432 hertz is the true key of A rather than 440 hertz? I've heard that that's the case, but um, is the true, what was it, the true key of A, of, a, of, of, um, of uh, the note? Yeah. A note, I don't, I'm not a musician. <laughs> All right. Um, so, I mean, I'd have to talk to my musician friends about that. Um, and I don't know what is the true, I don't know what it means to be the truth, but um, the true A versus the non-true A. So there are a couple others. But I, I've heard that too. I don't know. I just don't know. A couple other things I wanted to ask you about, get your opinions on stuff. Um, one of them, and I know you, I believe you mentioned this in the book. If not, I know you've talked about it before. Uh, what, what's your opinion of the Bosnian pyramid? Oh, I do mention that in the book, I think in one of the appendices or something like that. Uh, I don't want to sound too harsh, but the Bosnian pyramids are, are not ancient. I'll put it that way. Are there pyramids there? I guess there are pyramids there now because Samir Osmanagic is carving natural hills into pyramids. So if you want to call them pyramids, you can call them pyramids. <laughs> But they're uh, 21st century. Um, mm. I, I've spent a couple of weeks there. Um, I spent a couple of weeks with um, uh, Samir Osmanagic on site. And I say this pretty bluntly in the book. I mean, he's a fraud. He's a charlatan. And it's a real shame because he is, um, in my assessment as a geologist, he's got absolutely natural, um, you know, it's a very interesting geology, but they are natural hills which he's carving into um, fake pyramids, and he's perpetuating a fraud. I mean, I'm being blunt and honest, and I don't want to sound nasty, and some people will attack me for that, but it's the truth. Well, it it seems, if anything, it would help your work if they were real. It would would absolutely help my work. I would love for them to be real. See, this is one of the ironies of it. I'm not gaining anything personally by saying they're frauds. I'm just... Calling it the way I see it, and that's the way I've had to live, and I feel I have to live my um, life. I have to be honest. And I went there hoping they were real. Um, I didn't know what exactly to expect. It was certainly bolster a lot of things I've been talking about for decades. If they were real, it would help me um, in every way. But the fact is, they're not real. And um, for what it's worth, a lot of other people have come to the exact same conclusion. European archaeological community um, has, uh, you know, published statements about that, agreeing that um, they're not. They're not real days perpetuating a fraud. And it's a real shame because, you know, the last thing I think what we sometimes it's referred to as alternative archaeology, and I hate that term. Uh, but, you know, sort of the alternative archaeology of the alternative um, historians, the last thing that uh, one needs when one is in a controversial field to begin with is for someone to perpetuate a fraud and then have the conventional status quo say, you know, be able to point to that and say, aha, you see, that's fraudulent, and then they can throw everything else out, sort of throwing out the baby with the bathwater. And I've had that experience with people who have said to me, you know, this is all nonsense, etc. Well, how 
what, where are you coming from? What do you mean by that? And they'll point to the Bosnian pyramids, which clearly are nonsense, and then they'll want to dismiss everything else along with it. Um, so I think he's causing a lot of damage. I understand where he's coming from. Bosnia is a former Yugoslavia. It's a was a war torn country. They um, uh, people when I go there, those that are the believers, uh, they see this as a matter of uh, national pride. I had people even say to me, "How could I question the authenticity of the Bosnian pyramids?" I was being anti-Bosnian by questioning whether they were real or not, you know, I suppose, you know, they just want to toe the party line. It becomes a nationalistic thing. It brings in uh, money to the area. Uh, you know, he, he's sort of a national, a local hero, that type of thing. But, you know, to me, you have to have a baseline of reality. So that's, that's right. my opinion. Have you been there? <laughs> no, um, no. I, I, I thought I thought it was really interesting when I heard about it. But uh, a lot of people do, and I I was talking to people just this past month who have been there and went there thinking it was real, and then coming back, you know, we'll put it this way, disappointed, saying that it really wasn't. Uh, there's a, I have, I think, a link from my website, a Dutch film crew who went over there thinking it was real, only to find out it was a fraud and end up making a documentary, I think they called it The Biggest Hopes in History or something like that, with a question mark behind it. But come to the conclusion, it is a big hoax, and we're very disappointed. I mean, they didn't want to make a documentary about hoax. Right, but they came to the conclusion that that's what it was. Uh, so it, it's it's, and I'm sure people will attack me for saying that. Um, but I just have to call it the way I see it. Oh, good. That's that's what you. That's what people need to do. I, I mean, you know, if you don't keep your integrity, then you know what you have. And, and once you lose it, it's it's not something you can easily get back either. Exactly. Exactly. So I could tell you a lot of Bosnian pyramid stories, but the bottom line is they're not ancient. Yeah. All right. What um have you have you seen or have any opinion on this Baltic Sea anomaly? I have not seen it. I mean, I don't know that anyone's seen it. I think it's just basically um, been viewed remotely. I mean, you know, not remotely in some. Well, the, they, they they have gone down and dived on it. Have they dived on it now? Yes. Yeah. I, I haven't seen um, photographs of actual diving. I've only seen, I guess it was early on, maybe some radar scans, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I honestly don't know what to make of it. I've learned, um, and this ties in with Yanaguni. It ties in with the Bosnian pyramids. I I have it ties in with things like Markawasi and Peru. I'm naming things where I've actually been there and visited them and dived them and seen it for, with my own eyes. I found that um, as a general rule of thumb for me nowadays, I don't want to comment on things unless I've seen them firsthand or been able to study the raw data firsthand, which with the Baltic anomaly, I haven't been able to. And I right. don't know what to think of it. Is it something that goes back thousands of years and is really amazing? Is it a World War II structure, as I've heard some people suggest? I just don't know. Well, I, I would give the, the discoverers a lot of credit for not jumping to crazy conclusions and wanting to really investigate it thoroughly before they say anything. So That's what you have to do. I mean, all the indications to me are as it falls into the category of a real anomaly that needs to be investigated, not something that's being faked. Now, um, I don't know if you've done any, any research on this, but uh, what about reports of giants? in all these ancient sites around the world. That's actually interesting. I was going to bring that up earlier with Easter Island, and then we got distracted. Uh, I think you probably know from reading my book, there are reports of giants on Easter Island. 
when the um, Dutch first quote, discovered Easter Island in 1722, one of the um, lead officers reported that uh, there were still living giants on Easter Island. He talks about the men being 12 feet tall, not all the Easter Islanders, but that there was a race of Easter Islanders, that the men were 12 feet tall, that the um, Dutch, and the Dutch traditionally are not short people, that um, the Dutch could walk between their legs without uh, bending over. But the women of this race were not quite so large. They were only 10 feet tall. But still, 10 or 12 feet tall individuals was giant yeah. by modern standards. So this was reported for Easter Island. Of course, the status quo conventional archaeologists and historians dismissed this as just you know nonsense. One um, archaeologist said to me, "Well, yeah, they were twelve feet tall because they were standing on stilts." I think I think the Dutch would have noticed if a guy rode up. Um, they, they they talk about one coming out in a canoe, one of these short giants. I think they would have noticed if they were standing on stilts while they were you know coming out to meet the ship on in their canoe. Well, there seem to be a lot of old reports, especially in America, where they have these giant skeletons found in the mounds or around mound sites with like two rows of teeth and stuff, and you have them in the Indian legends as well. So, yeah, so my point is that you have it in East Island, you have it in North America. You, this is, uh, this is uh, something that you have legends of around the world, and it's very tantalizing, and um, I'm still waiting, though. Or physical remains. And when I say still waiting, I'm not trying to sound skeptical. I'm saying we really need to find um, good physical remains because there have been lots of reports of physical remains, but they seem to all disappear. Yeah, they either disappear or uh, like the Smithsonian supposedly has them, but doesn't That's show them to anyone. Show them to anyone, that type of thing. I wanted to draw another analogy, and I mentioned this in Forgotten Civilization. In Easter Island, as I was just mentioning, the Dutch reported when they first found the island in the early 18th century, um, there were these reports of giants still on the island. I've spoken to Easter Islanders, you know, natives of the island, one fellow in particular who said, yes, in his childhood or, you know, youth, he had seen giant human bones on the island, um, you know, and I, I quizzed him and uh, he was very clear. He was not talking about cow bones or something like that. He's an artist, professional artist. He knows what human bones look like and that these were definitely abnormally large bones. Um, I also want to make the other point, which I think is important and I talked about in the book. The uh, Dutch, who were great traders around the world. So they were not only going to Easter Island in the West Indies, they were also going to the Dutch East Indies, as it became known, the area of Indonesia, for instance. And they reported in the 18th and 19th centuries that the Indonesians had all kinds of stories about not giants, but very little people, a race of very little people, mm. were very short, you know, three feet tall or so, and apparently lived up in the uh, mountains of the remote islands and would come down sometimes and raid the villages and even steal babies, it was alleged, that type of thing, but that this was a distinct race of little people and this was either dismissed as, again, nonsensical tales by modern scientists and historians, or they say, well, maybe they're referring to orangutans or, you know, some kind of um, monkeys or apes or something like that. 
But uh, in the last 10 years, a new species of human has been discovered based on subfossil remains from the end of the last ice age, the so-called um, hobbits, Homo floresiensis, which is a distinct species of humans. Uh, they stood only three, three and a half feet tall when they were adults, and they fit the description that the Dutch reported. They heard from the natives in Indonesia. So now we have to, um, to, you know, face the possibility that maybe in that case, the Dutch were reporting good information. Maybe as late as just a couple of hundred years ago, Homo floresiensis, this distinct species of small humanoids, was alive in Indonesia. Um, and going back to Easter Island and giants, uh, you know, maybe the same possibility on the other end of the scale with giants is possible. That up until recent times, there were some outposts, if you will, some relic populations of a, a giant race. Hmm. All right. Well, we're, we're slowly running out of time here. Um, the, the way that, that modern science kind of blocks out things that don't fit, like, you know, your research on the Sphinx or these giants or anything, do you see that, that sort of dogma, that, that grip of dogma ever changing anytime in the near future? Uh, well, I, I would like to see it change, but do I think that's realistic? <laughs> not, not particularly. I think what happens is that, um, you know, certain areas, certain uh, fields, certain theories, ultimately, you want to think ideally that this uh, evidence becomes so overwhelming that you have to change. People have to change their minds. Realistically, what generally happens, and this is pretty well documented, it's not that people change their minds, but the people with a certain mindset die off, either professionally or physically just die. And then a new generation comes in that's not quite so set in that way of thinking and can consider the new information and then that sort of a new dogma, a new paradigm starts to take over. And I think we're seeing that even now with the concept of ancient civilizations and when civilization arose. I think I'm seeing that, fortunately, in my own lifetime with um, my work on redating the Sphinx, for instance. But it's a slow, painful process. Uh, people don't want to give up their worldviews. They don't want to give up uh, their paradigms. And more, it's not just at a conscious level. I think there's this deep-rooted, um, you know, subconscious fear of um, giving up your cherished worldview. Oh, sure. And that that's just a human thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's human nature, unfortunately. All right. Well, uh, your book is Forgotten Civilization. It's available everywhere. Yes. And I hope you're gone. <laughs> your, your website is robertshock.com. You want to spell that for people? Yes, it's uh, uh, robertshock.com, and it's R-O-B-E-R-T, just like Robert. But the last name is S-C-H-O-C-H. So it's R-O-B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-C-H.com. And, and you're gone? Yeah, and from there, people can link to the book. They can link to... Um, you mentioned it, megalithomania in the Boston area in October. Uh, but most importantly, if they would like to go to Turkey with me later this month, in about two weeks, they should sign up right now. There's a link on the website. And it's also linked on wheredidtheroadgo.com, and that, that tour goes from the 15th to the 28th of June. Correct. And it's and this, going to be a great tour. And the megalithomania is the, the first time that's going to be in the U.S., isn't it? Uh, 
I can't remember if it's the first time. I think it's the second time, but I actually was not involved with it the first time. Um, okay. But it's, it's going to be right here in Quincy, Massachusetts, right outside the Boston area. I know from where I am in Boston, I'm just going to take the uh, public transportation, so really close to Boston. All right. Anything else people should know that you have coming up? I'll be involved in that. Yeah, something else. Those in the Austin area, Austin, Texas, in September, I'll be doing a weekend um, workshop. And I'll be doing a lecture on Friday night and then a weekend workshop in Austin, Texas in September. So there's a link to that from my website also. Austin's a great place to be. So those in the Austin, those in the Austin, Texas area, I would invite them or if anyone wants to visit Austin, Texas, this is a good reason to go there. All right. Anything else? Okay. And again, robertshock.com, S-C-H-O-C-H is your website. That's correct. And um, most important, um, I don't want to say most important, but I hope people will look into my book, Forgotten Civilization, for lots more on everything we've discussed and um, many other topics. All right. And I, I would honestly, genuinely, highly recommend the book. It was a fascinating read and very well written. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. You have been listening to Where Did the Road Go? This show is made possible in part from our Patreons, and we thank you and everyone listening for helping us continue this exploration of the strange. You can always find everything Where Did the Road Go related at www.wheredidtheroadgo.com. And thank you so much for your support. <laughs>